name? Lee Sklar. He's an up-and-coming bass player in this <laughs> crazy world of Hollywood. We wanted to get him on the show today to give him a little exposure and try to get him on some records. He's only played on about 2,000 albums and toured the world with the greatest, most iconic musicians, songwriters, pretty much ever. He loves Sunset Sound. I've been wanting to do this for a year and a half now since we started this show. Lukather put me in touch, and here we are. I'm thrilled to be back here. I know. Oh, this is great. You hail from Milwaukee. Yes. I'm from Indiana, Chicagoland area. Midwest boys. Yes, sir. What brought you out here? Well, we moved here when I was going on five years old. So my roots in Milwaukee aren't, aren't uh, that deep. You know, I'm pretty much a San Fernando Valley kid. Yeah. Um, but uh, my tie to Milwaukee at this point is Daryl Sturmer, Whoa. the guitar player uh, from Phil Collins and Genesis' band. Still, he's from Milwaukee and still lives there. Oh. So when I get back, I, I get my fix of Milwaukee just hanging with Daryl. Do you like Los Angeles? I love L.A. Yeah. You know, I mean, as Randy Newman said, <laughs> I love L.A. Yeah, I can't, you know, the, the joy of for me is that I've gotten to travel the world doing what I do. And every time I come back here, I'm happy to be here. I mean, there's, there's aspects of it like any other place that you kind of look at. I'm looking at the street scene coming here today, and it's not the world I grew up in. Yeah. But my, my fondness for Los Angeles and what it has to offer from the standpoint of theater and, and food and, and just energy and stuff. It's really great. But then you turn on the news and you look at flooding and freezing and hurricanes and tornadoes. And we're pretty blessed here with weather. So We are. I love L.A. I moved out here 17 years ago. Okay. Left, went to Florida one time. I was like, it's still warm and it's cheaper to live. Uh, this is 10 years ago probably. Yeah. It lasted about a year, and I'm like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> Florida, it's so hot, so yeah. muggy, all snowbirds. Muggy is, kills me, man. I am not a humid person. I like, I really like cold, actually. Yeah, yeah I'm kind of come from Eastern European stock, and I, I kind of, I mean, it's funny. There, there's a video of with Phil Collins where we were doing the Today Show, and it was wintertime back there, and you're out on the plaza outside of the NBC studios there. And Phil and the band's like a 50 layers of clam still in a T-shirt. <laughs> it's like everybody's going, what's wrong with you? I said, yeah, it's just my blood. That's the way I am. Yeah. And also Hollywood, you know, it's, it's a little scuzzy. It always kind of has been uh, since I've been here, obviously. But places like Sunset Sound, the Troubadour, Chateau Marmont, you know, certain music venues that are still going. Yeah. You walk in them and it has an energy and you feel like... You know, it's 1978 sometimes, especially Sunset Sound. Yeah. When you step in this iconic studio, you know, 65 years, start as Disney, what do you immediately think of? Just, we walked in right now into Studio 3, and you're like, wow, as soon as I walk in here, a million stories come oh, to mind. Oh, God, you know, I mean, I, I, this was like a second home, you know, for, for all, most of the players I work with. We spent so much time here. I remember being here, we did all of the early Rita Coolidge and Chris Christopherson records over in... in uh, Studio One? One. Jimmy Webb here, Corey Wells from Three Dog Night. Every room has like stories to me and in uh, history. And there's a weight of history. And then all these memories, guys like Yazawa, who's a, like one of the biggest Japanese you know, rock gods, 
We did one of his albums over in two. Our, our band, The Section, did work here, and all the engineers that have come and gone through here over the years, guys like John Haney, and uh, it's uh, it's magical. I, mean, I did Manhattan Transfer here, you know, all kinds of uh, projects. And, uh, yeah. you know, you walk in, and it, it is kind of a time warp. There were very few changes yeah. at this studio over the years. Maybe the bathroom got upgraded and things like Once. that. Once. <laughs> yeah, but but you walk into the rooms, and it's it's really the room you were in. But every time I walk in, I just kind of go, wow, this is deep. And I'm so grateful that it's still here because so many are gone now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it really breaks my heart that the history of this industry in this town has been kind of denigrated over the years. I think United is going to be bulldozed down from what I understand. Wow, that building's going to be raised and they're going to put up an office building or something. That's there. a travesty. That was the first studio I was ever in in this town in 1967. Oh, and uh, seeing those things go away because they'll never come back. Yep. Nobody's going to reinvest in a new studio. So keep that, this goddamn place going here. <laughs> that was my goal. One, um, a bassist I work with all the time. I, I hit up every great bassist I know also to get a question from you. From yeah. Pino Palladino, I texted Sean Hurley, I texted every bassist, and I was like, I got Lee Sklar coming in, and I want a question from you to ask him, which I'll get to. But, you know, when I came here, I was at MTV, and I came over here to Sunset, and I was recording music here, and I just talked to the owner about missing revenue streams and cool stuff. And then I started seeing, like... David Foster come in and he'd tell a story and I'd sit there and listen and I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. And it'd be, you know, the guys from Earth, Wind and Fire or something would come in, Verdine White. He'd tell a story. I'm like, why are these not documented? Yeah. And also seeing Capital go away, United and these other studios, it's like these need to be put down in a book, but it's modern. So let's do like a podcast kind of yeah. thing. It's just so special because even when I sit in here and produce or play on a session or do anything involving these rooms there's not a day i'm not excited there's not a day i don't come through that gate and look up at the sign and i'm like it's fucking awesome yeah you know there's nothing like it no it's yeah it's it's really it's it's in your dna yep if, if this is if this is something that you've historically followed or anything and the minute you walk in you go oh, wow this is re it's real yep i mean I'm, I'm sitting here right now and there's an artist i work with named judith owen she's married to harry Shearer. Mm -hmm. from Spinal Tap and Simpsons. And I'm just, we're sitting here talking and I'm looking, Russ Kunkel's drums were right here. Wow. Lenny Castro was right there. Love and Wally Wachtel was right here. I mean, I, I, I close my eyes and I'm in that space and I see everybody here. This complex really creates that that kind of a vibe here that, that it puts you on your A game the minute you walk through the gate. Yep, that's what and, Steve Lindsay was saying yesterday. He's like, I... You know, you, Steve Lindsay, Luther, you know, have done so much tremendous work, but for you to come in this place in 2023 and still have a little bit of excitement and intimidation and motivation to yeah. just do your best. Why is it the history that brings that out of you, or is it just the energy of a it's place? The vibe. This place has a vibe about it. You know, yeah. you, you look and it's it's that funky old studio. I mean, it's that look. You know, that the studios we grew up in in this town have this kind of a look to them. And you walk in and and you start to think about how many different people I've worked with that I've seen in this room. And there there's like this energy and spirits floating around in here that, mm -hmm. that never dissipate. Um, and it's uh, it's magic to me. It, 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 it saddens me on one level because 
so like I said, so many of these play, kind of places are gone. But um, also that there's like a generation, or at least one, maybe two generations now of musicians that will never experience that. Yes. And to me, that's the thing that got all our juices flowing. You, you know, you go through the bullshit drive here and you're stuck in traffic and you get rear-ended on Las Feliz on your way to work, <laughs> which happened and all this stuff. But the minute you go in that gate and the minute you hear the buzzer and that gate opens up and you walk in, it's a different energy that hits you. I love you. Now, I love it. Uh, you know, to me, this is intoxicating. Yep. And it really makes you appreciate what you've done and got to do. But also, that's why I want to keep this place open for another 65 years. So a whole new generation of artists, musicians can come in here and just write. Um, you know, I got Miley down here uh, for a one-day little project to honor Janis Joplin. She, I toured her around. I'd been asking her to come down forever. Columbia Records called the next morning and booked months. And Zach, who's engineering this session yeah. right now, worked on that. And uh, she wrote here, wrote her whole record. Oh, that's great. And she did Flowers. And that's the biggest song ever. It broke yeah. every streaming record on Spotify. And her her record, Endless Summer Vacations, up for six Grammy nominations. You know, Miley's amazing. She's uh, a pop artist. But even for someone like that that comes in with writers in a band and just sits in here and absorbs the rooms and absorbs herself and the energy like her best stuff ever was yeah. done here, you know? And in, But also when you look on those walls out there, which you played on a lot of those records, like Jackson Brown, all his greatest records, Van Halen, all their greatest records, yeah. Prince, his greatest period in this room, you know? Three is, is an amazing room, but one and two are also amazing rooms too that have that, that same vibe in them. And that courtyard out there watching really shitty basketball players trying to make hoops out there, you know, <laughs> and stuff. And it just exudes this thing that, that really words can't describe. You know, it's one of those things you have to experience. And, uh, and then if you've had the history here, when you walk in, it, like, boom, it comes right back to you again. Yeah. And that, to me, is magic. And for someone like you, who has been here throughout the decades and seen it transform. You know, you've probably sat out in that courtyard and it's been like Elton John and Cher out there yeah. and Rita Coolidge. And uh, I saw Michael McDonald the other day. He was playing a festival and we were talking backstage. And I, I just went and introduced myself because, you know, he's they did six records here. Yeah. And he's just immediately excited, you know. And yeah. I'd never met him before, but he was like, oh, I, I love that. I saw the Lukather and the Picaro, uh, Steve Picaro interview. And yeah. was, you know, that's exciting. And I was like, well, we got to get you to do that. Yeah, he would be great. Yeah. He would be great to come in. Yeah, I mean, everybody, it, it's it's one of those names. You say Sunset Sound, and it is uh, so iconic that anywhere in the world, like if I'm talking to people in Europe or I'm in Asia, anywhere on tour, and people start talking to me, and if I ever mention this, they go, oh, yeah, it's, it's almost reverent yeah. to them. This is like the watering hole kind of vibe to them. And that's, that's a remarkable thing to have because it's not just brick and mortar. Yep. It's it's a different thing. And what the thing that's so romantic, and then we'll move on, uh, is that it's a father-son operation. You know, Walt Disney and Tutti Camerata started this in 58, just to, needed a place to do some Disney tracking. Yeah. You know, one room. And then they went public in 62. Bruce Botnick walked in off the street at 19 years old, I think 18, and said, hey, I I'm, you know, just got out of engineering program. Do you need any help? Mm -hmm. And he did Six Doors records and was in there with Janis Joplin when she left the day she died and uh, worked on Doobie Brothers stuff. And, you know, he's still engineering to this day. Oh, Bruce is great. Yeah. You've worked with him before, right? Yeah. Yeah, many times. Speaking of rooms, um, but yeah, and to stay 
you know, the longevity of this place, just being two guys, you mm-hmm. know, and Tutti Camerata passed away now. He was an amazing composer, label head. Uh, his son took over and he yeah. runs it today. And yeah. it's that special. Those things kind of don't happen anymore. See, when I'm, when I'm recording, uh, I hate not having an amp. Big time. Bass. I don't want to just be listening in earbuds or headphones. So when I'd work in that room, if they really didn't need it for anything else, I would go into that, that ISO booth with my amp. And I, I, I can see the drummer. I can see everything. Yeah. I don't need to be in the same room. It's actually nicer for me not to be in the same room with the drums, you know, fighting that against the phones. But that was kind of my favorite room where I know in one, like when we were doing Christofferson and Rita, um, that as you're walking in, there was the ISO booth on the side, and that's where they were always in that. And I was sitting right in front of them, so I could just turn around and look at them. And it was usually, I think Sammy Creason was the drummer on most of that stuff. And he was set up across, so I could kind of be watching. I was sort of in the middle of all that. And Mike Utley would be on piano or B3. And wow. it was really great. Jerry McGee, oh, God's all coming back here. It's weird. I haven't thought about this in ages. I mean, just when you say two sentences, I have 40 questions that come to yeah. mind. Well, Chris was great because he would use, a lot of times play 12-string on things because he played so hard that by the end of the song, he would be a six-string, he'd be breaking <laughs> strings. And uh, his his way of relaxing, he, he liked having a case of beer and a bottle of Tia Maria. <laughs> and we'd all look and go, really? Wow. He, is a, he was a fabulous piece of work. And David Anderle produced all that stuff. Yeah. I worked here with David a tremendous amount of times. Yeah, Jackson Brown yeah. and... Well, let's start off with the first question. Yeah. Um, do you always stay strapped with a BB gun? <laughs> that was in two. <laughs> yes. That's where it happened. That was Jimmy Webb, I think. No, we were doing Randy Edelman, his album, and Fred Mullen and Matthew McCauley were producing that. And yeah, I, for some reason, I ended up with this l- little pellet pistol. It was all kind of like an air thing uh, <clears throat> where you could crank it down and you would just put a little thing in it. Popping. Well, we're in there, and I was doing some overdubs, and and Fred's driving me crazy. I love Fred, and I've worked with him on many things, and he actually worked on our band's first album with us. But um, he was just driving me nuts of doing some overdubs, and I finally just he had just gotten a cup of coffee, and he's standing there, and I reached down and I pulled out the pellet gun, just a bam, and knocked the blew the coffee cup out of his hand. He freaked out and ran out, and then I finished <laughs> finished doing my thing. I've still got that pellet gun. Oh my gosh! Yeah. But uh, we would sit in there and we'd go, let's see if we can hit that light. <laughs> Everybody liked playing with that. It was just as wasn't a toy, but uh, but yeah. it, it, it it was just a funny moment. Like Luke loves to talk about that. Yeah, he emailed and, uh, me this morning about it. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was great. But still got it. You know, Incredible. <laughs> That's. I mean, was it the Wild West though? Like when the stories Luke's telling, he's like, you know, Lenny Castro had a ninja sword that he brought out. We almost got in this, you know, jail room brawl in the courtyard, and Luke's on the PA system, and they got a. a a Winnebago outside, and there's blow everywhere. I mean, was there just well, kind of... Well, everything is predicated on the project. You know, some some of the people were real maniacs, yeah. and there was always scenes going down. But for the for most of the guys I knew, everybody's pretty much a real hardcore pro. Sure. I mean, when you come in, there, it, it, it's, a, it's time and money. Um, you don't want to dissipate the creative juices with distractions. You know, it's one thing like when you're working with Willie, he's going to be out in his bus and you're, they're going to open the door and there's this waft of smoke coming out and all that. But that's that's how they function when you're when they're working. 
Uh, most of the time when I was here, um, we were really focused on the projects. I mean, everybody was was great and relaxed, and there was moments of, of you know, just hanging and fun and all that. Um, but in terms of like ninja swords and all that stuff, I, I would tend to think that that probably like with Luke and, and that original lineup of characters, because I worked with Jeff all the time. I love Jeff Picaro. Yes. Um, those guys were all pretty nuts and, uh, and really living hard yeah. uh, on that. But I know when, the thing that would always happen, though, is the red light comes on and, man, dead serious. I always kind of equate it to... Um, Harpo Marx uh, of the Marx Brothers, where he would be this zany character of them, but in any of the footage where he plays harp on it, all of a sudden this serenity would come and he would be this musician and then he would be goofy when it. All these cats were like that. I mean, they're all these complete casts of characters, but the minute that red light came on, it's like this thing happened, and then everybody was in the zone, and the recordings would go because you want to capture things fast, you know, get it while everybody's still completely fresh in the moment and not thinking distracted. I did probably one of Luke's first recording sessions. I think he was 19 when we started working together. Always a challenge on these things, especially in the old days, because he he could be go so left, on yeah. you. but the minute that light came on, he was one of the best players in town. You know, so the power of music. He's an amazing cat. Have you played with Brian Wilson ever? Yeah, I did um, Orange Crate Art with Van Dyke Parks and and uh, Brian Wilson. I, did, I think I did work on one of the Beach Boys projects. Well, my question for that is one that's amazing, yeah. obviously, but two, uh, there was a doc called Long Promised Road, which Jason Fine uh, from Rolling Stone produced, directed. Cameron Crowe's involved, Atticus Ross, Jim James. Mm -hmm. And Brian's older now and has uh, some health issues, but yeah. when he sits down at the piano and puts the headphones on, it's like he's 19 years old yeah. again. I mean, he is so clear and has direction and talks better and just the music that goes into him, it almost heals him in some Well, it ways. does. It, music does that. I was just listening to a thing that on the radio when I was driving to something the other day and they were talking about um, dementia and Alzheimer's and music. Yeah. And, and it was really these people that are so far gone, but the minute they hear some music that was part of their lives, they're suddenly coherent. They're singing along with things. Or if they were a pianist, they're, they're sitting at a piano kind of playing it. Yet the minute the stuff stops, they kind of fold up and they're back in this thing. But music has such a remarkable... I guess there's an element of healing, but there's also just a cathartic thing that happens with it that it, it can affect you in, on so many levels. I mean, that's one of the things that I've, I've loved so much over the years is when I meet people, like when we're touring and things like that, and they come up and they go, you know, what you've played on is like the soundtrack of my life. Mm. And these songs mean different things to people. Sometimes it's marriage, sometimes it's death, divorce, births. And these are like benchmarks for them. And, and I go... I'm exactly like you. I said, even the stuff I played on is the benchmark of my life. And I sit there and I can remember what I was going through when we were in the studio. And, and there's a, a, a clarity that, that can come to me when I'm talking about studio days and who I was in the studio with and talking about the record plant and RCA and Gold Star and all these rooms that I was fortunate enough to spend my whole life in. As soon as I'm in that space, boy, there's a it's like this little fog dissipates and 
it becomes clarity at that point. And uh, for somebody like Brian, I'm sure the minute he sits at the piano and he's encapsulated, you know, he's hearing the music just in his ears and he's not really being affected by the, the, what's going on in the room or anything like that. I think there's probably just at that point, he suddenly is in, in that space again. Yeah. Uh, and the minute he's got to be in this world, that's where his challenges come, is just dealing with what's going on around him. Yeah. Also, you know, when music's released, it's really not the artist's song anymore. It's kind of whatever the listener interprets it, it yeah. as, you know. That's why I like lyrics that don't make sense, but also kind of little things you'll pick up on and you apply them to something in your life that day. You know, it's going to affect you differently than it'll affect you, or maybe yeah. you interpret it differently. And it's like, it's this thing, this sound that we can just kind of keep safe in our heart and our memories and our mind. And I have that with a lot of songs. Yeah. There's songs that I just know that if I put that on, it's going to remember, it's going to take me back to the moment my father died or, you yeah. know. I listened to that at that certain point, or it came on the radio and really hit me. Yeah, I had a friend. I mean, he's one of the top musicians in town here, uh, guitarist. Um, but we were playing the Universal Amphitheater with James Taylor. And he came to the show, and I talked to him like a couple of days later, and he said I was sitting there sobbing during the show. He said I felt emotions. And he said I went home that night and told my wife I want a divorce. He said, it welled something up. He said, I've been going through a really bad time with her. It wasn't really working. But it was like this thing that gave him focus. And at the, it, it, it empowered him to go do what he felt he had to do. And he said, if it hadn't been for that show, I might still be miserable and making wow. her miserable. Yep. So it's weird. But it, it's also our, our senses are, are remarkable. There's things you'll smell like a clover that maybe was growing in a field next to a house you were in when you were five years old. And if all of a sudden you smell that, you're five years old again. Even if it's for a moment, you just kind of, there's this thing that happens. And music can do that. You hear a couple of notes of something, and for an instant, you're like transported to the first time you heard that. And what was, I mean, I'm that way with the band Vanilla Fudge. Um, the first time I heard their first album, it blew my mind. And I remember I was, I had an old panel truck at that point and I was at a party and I wasn't digging this thing, but I had the panel truck all fixed up. I had a little stereo system in it and I, and I was parked down the street and I said, I'm out of here. I went in and I just kind of laid down in the back and turned on the radio and that album came on. And when I hear that, I'm right back in that panel truck. And that was probably 1968 when that was going on, or 67, wow. or something like that. So there's, there's these triggers that, yeah. that, that can happen. And that, to me, is that same trigger is what happens when I walk into this property, is no matter how different the street scene outside this building looks from when I was first coming here back you know, 50 years ago, mm. as soon as I walk through the gate, it triggers all those things again, and this kind of weird little endorphins start to, to well up. And uh, and each 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 corner I turn, I visualize something that went on in here and different people I knew. And and the thing that's to me now is so many are gone, and uh, so it really it's almost like a like a time capsule. You come in and and the, the fact that they're no longer present, they're present in here. Yeah. So I I, I really that's embrace beautiful. it. I take it all in. Dick Wagner, when we did the thing for um, St. Jude's Hospital. I mean, after we played in this room, 
And I remember Elliot Easton was sitting right here from the cars, and I was sitting right behind where I am right now. And it was like a room was packed with like the top people in the business doing this big, huge song for St. Jude Hospital. Um, and then I talked to Dick afterwards, and he, he was proposing us putting a band together and doing all this, and then he passed away right after that. You know, and I just sit there and I go, I was in the room when they were doing the, cor- the choir part of this, and he was standing right here, and I feel his presence still right here from that, because mm-hmm. it it's a presence beyond just being there. These, these people have a thing about them that's bigger than th- them. <laughs> it's just, it's mm-hmm. hard to describe, but you know, th- their presence is, um, I feel it all the time. Corey Wells, who's no longer with us, one of the Incredible. members of Three Dog Night, sure. and we were in two, and I was just sitting there going, I, lo- I love this band. I've always loved the band. And I got to do a Japanese commercial with Chuck Negron um, and stuff. But Corey, to me, really had like the pipes. And we're suddenly in there, and I'm just going, I'm still fanboy. Yeah. You know, so when I get to work with uh, any of these people, you know, there's a part of me where I feel like we're all together in this. And there's another part of me where their history is so poignant. You Big know, time. to me, it was such a part of my upbringing, you know, listening to the Three Dog Night songs and all uh, that. The, when I'm around them, there's a little a little corner of my psyche that's going, wow, it's <laughs> just a trip. It's really him. Do you remember the first session or time you came in here? What year it was or record you played on um, or track, overdub? It might have it been the first Rita and Chris album uh, i think that that was probably that, at least that that's the one that really sticks to my mind i mean it was lots after that but it, it, that would have been like either rita solo or, or rita and chris because uh, we did a lot of records with them as a duo and other stuff with her as a, as a solo artist i but, love her oh she's she's great she's still great yeah. And and Chris is wonderful. Uh, I really love Chris too. So I, I would tend to think that might have been it. That was probably around 71 or two, something like that. Well, you know what? I To honor all the iconic female artists of 65 years here, I just did a record and this documentary called Women of Sunset. Mm. And right. I brought in modern artists, and that's actually what Miley came in for, okay, to cool. do Janis Joplin. But I brought in modern artists to recreate, rearrange, and pay tribute to all the female iconic artists of this studio and get back in a room and look at other band members mm-hmm. and remember this is how it was done, you know, yeah. not building on a logic session. Whitney Houston's background singer, her name's Charlotte. She's incredible. And I said, I want you to come out front now. She was with uh, on the Grammys this year with Stevie Wonder, and I said, I want you to sing the lead. And she said, I want to do We're All Alone, um, mm. which is such a beautiful song. Well, Boss Gags was in here, and he wrote the song. <laughs> this is like, I don't know, two months ago probably. <laughs> and, I, and I told him the story, and he was like, that, that's incredible. you know." And it's like, that's what this show's about, just kind of paying it forward and documenting things. And you know, I want young female singers to hear that song and a, a modern variation, but then also go look back at, you know, Rita's version. Yeah. And the story behind it, how Boz wrote it. Do you remember that song playing on it? Oh, I remember it, absolutely. Wow. So yeah. you did play bass on that yeah. track. Oh, no, I, I loved it. I mean, we would do stuff. I mean, we would, like Booker T would be playing keyboards on um, stuff, and maybe Cropper would come in. And it was really great because David Anderley was a real great, he was a great producer and kind of a great hunter-gatherer of talent. 
so he would put together these really great combinations of players to sure. work on the things. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I remember that. I mean, I, all the stuff I did with Rita was always fun. She was, to me, was the next generation incarnation of Peggy Lee. Had that kind of honey voice, you know. Yeah. It's like there's no rough edges on it. It's just it's smooth and silky. And, uh, and just also just good people. So it was always a joy to be around them. It, there was an element in those days that was almost like guerrilla recording. Because um, there, were, there were few rules. Because what started happening then, this is kind of what we're going through with, there's a, with our band, The Immediate Family. There's a documentary film that Denny Tedesco, who did The Wrecking Crew, has done one about us, which premieres on the 12th next week wow. um, Magnolia ended up buying it and it's an amazing film and Incredible. it's about our group of guys Russ Kunkel and myself and Danny Korchmar and Waddy Wachtel um, from back at the beginning in the 70s with James Taylor but there was a thing that happened where you had the wrecking crew and then all of a sudden there was this this completely paradigm shift of how recording was being done from those people would come in, there'd be charts in front of them. They were amazing, amazing musicians. But for the most part, they were given charts. You know, they could throw, like Carol Kay would throw an idea in that would, could change the song completely. Yep. Um, but when we started working, it was really people were hiring us just to come in and be us. And a lot of times there was no charts, there was no nothing, and it was a different thing. So it was a, there was a guerrilla aspect to it where we were all kind of making the rules on our own. There was, we weren't coming in with a set setup of how things were going to be. Yeah. So it was an adventure every time. And that's, I think, the thing that made it so interesting. There was never a, a kind of cut and dry, here's how we do it thing. So you'd come in and everybody would be kind of just vibing with each other. And we might go in and set up and go, oh, drums might be better in that corner. That's kind of different that's you know, amazing reflection in there or something the freedom so, yeah it was really a freedom and, and especially in those days the, the the budgets were there so nobody was like you know looking at their watch kind of come on we got to get going here you, you could take time to really let something evolve and develop in in the studio and out of that a, a, a real camaraderie and a trust between players happened because we were we were m making things up as we went along. We weren't looking at a piece of paper and one take through and you're, you're done, move to the next thing. It would be like, play that again, I wanna hear that. And then you'd, I'd maybe go with like, a, it was like Waddy played something or Cooch played something. I'd say, let me hear that. And find a bass part that works with that. And uh, we, we weren't being pushed out the door. So we spent really an incredible amount of creative time in these walls. And that was one of the things that to me was so exhilarating every day was you'd come in and uh, your ass was on the line. You really had to come up with the goods. There's no like, a, I don't feel it kind of a thing. You know, you yeah. really had to do it. And uh, some of the most creative music I've ever been involved with happened during those periods of just everybody just, you know, this thing would happen in the room. And it, it, it was, it's, it's, again, it's one of those things you can't verbalize you just had to have been there yeah. for it. And, uh, and, and it was analog world then. I mean, the, the, the feel of looking on the walls and seeing the tape off the console with, you know, the song is on there and it's got a list of like drums, bass, and all the mm -hmm. things on it. And the amount of boxes of tape that would be piling up in there. You, know, you just go, 
somebody's going to have to listen to this at some point and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so you'd work on some projects, there could be 200 boxes of tape by the time they finish six months in the Total studio four. easily. Um, I have a picture of Toto 4 and the tapes laying on the ground uh, oh, at Studio 2. It's just hundreds of tapes. Oh, it was it was great. I remember. Stones, too. Exile. Well, we were in the studio um, with our group, The Section, and we wanted to do an edit on there, uh, on one of the songs. And that was back in the day of pulling out this 24-track or 16-track and putting it in the editing block and cutting the tape, and it's hanging there. And... Uh, we we did it and we went. Oh, I think it went better the older way. Went to get the tape and it fell and went through a crack in the floor. Into, and there was no way to retrieve it. Holy! And Jesus. and we ended up having to relearn the song with this weird timing edit that was in it because there's no way we were going to be able to fix this and not wow. recut it again. So, I mean, it's just like crazy stuff would happen, or or you know, when a, when a machine would throw tape. Yeah. And all of a sudden it would break and that machine's cranking. All of a sudden this tape is like flying off the reel. And then there's the second engineer trying to wind it back on without damaging it. And it's, it was it was great. We still do, um, not a ton, but like when the Black Keys come in, they record a tape. Uh, a lot of... Um, a lot of people are still excited about it. They yeah. or, or they, they heard about it for so long that they decided, if it was possible, let's let's cut to tape. I know with Phil Collins when we were in the studio, we would we would cut basic tracks to tape and then dump it over into Pro Tools or whatever, so that they could do all the editing and whatever sure. you know vocal comps or anything is a lot easier in the digital format. Um, but for basic tracks, drums, bass, you know, keyboards, we cut all that stuff to tape, and uh, and then I just we would sit and listen back and go, oh, man, this is good. It's really good. <laughs> Um, I know you've talked about James Taylor so much uh, on so many interviews, but you... Well, I'm happy to talk about that. So. Where did you meet him? And then you came in on Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon. That was the first record yeah. you played on, correct? Yeah. Where did you first meet James? Well, at? in the late 60s, I was in a local band uh, out in the valley called Wolfgang. And uh, our, our, manage, our, our main manager was Bill Graham, the great oh, Bill sure. Graham. And Bill's real name uh, was Wolfgang. And um, we thought, what better way to suck up to your manager than to name your band after him? I didn't know that. Yes. It was still one of the best bands I've ever been in. We ended up cutting some demos, and that was about all that ever happened with us. But our drummer, uh, his name was uh, Bugs Pemberton. Bugs was English. We had two English guys, and Bryn Haworth and Bugs Pemberton were in the band. And Bugs had a friend named John Fishbeck. Now, John Fishbeck owned Crystal Recording Studios down on Vine Street in Santa Monica. Yeah. And he did all of Stevie Wonder's early records, Songs in the Key of Life and all that. And, and he still is, he's in, in New Orleans, and he's still engineering down there and producing. Well, he had a, a, a friend from childhood who had just gotten back to America from England. And John would come and hang out at our rehearsals with us. We had a house out in Sunland, and a, a band house, and we would rehearse out. In fact, the, the very first time Wolfgang ever performed on stage together, we opened for winter, uh, at Winterland for Led Zeppelin. What? <laughs> it was our first gig, was playing with, with what Zeppelin. What year? 69. Holy 68, cow. 68, 69. And uh, so, uh, so John would come and hang out at our rehearsals, and at one of these rehearsals, he brought this friend of his. Well, it was James Taylor. Oh, and James had just gotten back from England after he did his, he had done his English Apple album uh, for Apple Records. Yeah. 
And I mean, it's all convoluted how these things happen. James and Danny Korchmar were childhood friends and they spent summers together on Martha's Vineyard. And, and uh, so they knew each other from, from teenage days. Um, and they had a band called the Flying Machine and they worked in mm-hmm. the village. Well, it, it, when it wasn't happening, James said, I'm going to give a shot and go to England and see if I can get anything together there. And Danny said, uh, if you're going over there, look up Peter Asher because um, Peter and Gordon, Peter Asher was half of Peter and Gordon that came over with the English invasion and all that stuff. Um, they would get pickup bands when they came to America and the band would learn their couple of tunes that they had and they would do it. Well, at one of those pickup bands, Danny was in it and he and Peter became fast friends. So they, they were connected. So he, so Cooch told James, he said, when you get over to London, look up Peter. Well, at that point that James was there, Peter had just been made head of A&R at Apple records. So James called him. And he got, they got together and he played him some songs and demos and stuff that he had done. And Peter just said, you're incredible. I love your playing. I love your writing. I love your singing. You want a record deal? And James says, please, I'd love one. <laughs> and so they went in the studio in England and cut the album, the Apple album there. Then when they came back... He was uh, getting clean from heroin at this point too, right? Hmm? Wasn't he on, uh, getting clean from heroin? No, no. He was totally strung out. Still okay, that during point. the Apple period. Yeah. You gotcha. know, he, he was strung out through most of the 70s. Gotcha. Uh, not necessarily on heroin. Uh, he, he got kind of strung out over the years on methadone, you know, which is supposed to help you quit, but that became an addiction yeah, too. And he, he had his, his issues. But the thing that was remarkable with James is no matter how basically uh, at any given time, how fucked up he was, he could play perfectly. He never forgot a word, never hit really? a wrong chord. The minute he would sit down, like walking into the studio... You know, or like Brian Wilson sitting at the piano, the minute he would start doing what James does, there was total clarity. He was in the moment, never fucked up. And then when he would be done playing, then he would go fuck up his life, <laughs> whatever. Mm. And I remember him saying when he finally cleaned up, he said he gained about 20 hours a day. <laughs> it's like at that point, because it was pretty bad. When I met him, they had just finished recording his James Taylor album for Warner Brothers and yeah. Peter produced it and it was Danny Korchmar on on guitar and Russ Kunkel on drums and the piano player was Carol King in the band and I think Bobby West played bass on a, on a lot okay. of that album because I hadn't met them at that point and uh, they were getting ready to uh, play a gig at the Troubadour and and Peter was you know saying you know I want to get the band from the record but we really need a bass player, and James had just been at the rehearsal, and he called Peter, and he said, "I found my bass player," and they tracked me down, and they said, "Would you like to play this gig?" And I figured it'd be one show yeah. with him, and it turned into fifty plus years, um, and uh, and we just hit it off. Everybody just it came together, and during the course of our early touring in those first year, um, unbeknownst to really her. James, at a certain point, told the audience, he said, you know, Carol's an amazing songwriter. Carol, why don't you play some of your songs for the audience? And she's like, really? And she ends up playing a few songs. And the next thing you know, she's in the studio cutting tapestry. And, you know, here's one of the biggest albums in history. Because her, she was, a, as a teenager, had like a profound career. All the, she and Jerry Goff and her husband, they were one of the great songwriting teams out of the Brill Building and... 
you know, with, you know, Burt Backrack and Hal David and Neil Sedaka and, and yeah. all these people. Jeff Barry. And all of a sudden, there she is on stage doing her thing. So she had to leave finally at that point because she was had she had little little kids and she had her own career happening and i was doing an album i think we did it over at a and m but it was a uh, tom jans and mimi farina and mimi farina was joan baez's younger sister and so i got hired to to do their album and when we were in the studio there's a keyboard player on it named craig Durge, and i had never met craig before and i contacted uh, peter at that point i said i think i found carol's replacement and so Craig came in, and they loved him, and so he started playing with James, and uh, and it's all these things are so weird. And we'd be on the road, uh, and James didn't like to he liked to more do like a line check. He didn't want to like waste a lot of time doing sound. So he'd come in do his sound check and would split, and we were all just horny players. We just wanted to play, so we would just jam all the time. And our front of house mixer Buford Jones, uh, who worked with Shoko started recording our jams and he gave it to Jane uh, to Peter Asher and one day Peter calls us aside and he goes I want you to hear something and he plays us and we go that's great what's that he goes that was your sound check <laughs> and so he got us a deal with Warner Brothers at that point now we never really had success as and James named the band the section he said well you guys are a music oh, you're wow. the section so just call it the section and we said fine because I don't give a shit about names you know so many stupid names became iconic you know, household things after a while. But we had, we had a great time, and then we ended up opening for James on his tours, and we opened for Jackson on his tour. So we would be the opening act of the show, and then we'd come right back on afterwards and play with the artists. So it was this whole package thing. It was really great. And James and Jackson's management would talk to each other, so there was never a conflict of schedules. They, we would come off of one of those guys' tours, and we'd immediately go in rehearsal for the next tour and go back out with those guys again. Same with Linda Ronstadt, and we... The first time we all really toured together as the group that's that is now the immediate family, which was Danny and Russ and myself, and then Waddy Wachtel joined us was on Carol King's Thoroughbred album, which was her follow up to Tapestry, and so these things are all kind of floating around and boom, they keep coming together, and it's been one of those things where I just I love that aspect of it where you're you kind yeah. of effortlessly things come together when I when when I was in Wolfgang, we, we, we went in the studio with uh, a producer named David Rubinson mm -hmm. uh, up in the Bay Area, and we cut demos. That was the only time I had ever been in the studio, ever. Uh, then ended up meeting James and, and starting, because actually before James, the first record I ever worked on uh, professionally was an artist, Brian Highland who did Itsy Bitsy, Teensy Weensy, Yellow Polka Dub. No shit. But I, I think we did Sealed With a Kiss was a huge hit, and I played on that. Russ and I were both on that record. And Del Shannon, the great Del Shannon, was the producer on that. And that was just before I started recording with James. So that was actually the first professional session. But it, the weird part of this whole career thing was um, – James was like the perfect artist for something new happening in music, the singer-songwriter movement. Even though you had Dylan and all these people, and Phil Oaks and all these people during kind of the folk era, what came next was different. And James was like the, 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 the figurehead, spearhead for benchmark for this whole thing. Because one day, nobody knew who he was, and the next day, he's on, on the cover of Time magazine. At, you know, and they're talking about this is the new movement in music. 
And we're just right there with him. So we got kind of brought into this. One of the, the, the most profound things for us was that Peter Asher put our names on the album jacket. That had never been done before. And so when people were starting, to, labels were starting to sign singer-songwriters because of the success James was having, they would look at the album and they go, well, if these guys are good enough for James, we should call them. And all of a sudden we went from no studio experience basically to being the first call guys in town and having to figure all of this out, suddenly ending up in rooms like this and trying to figure out how to record because we really were, we were band guys. We were just playing gigs, you know, yeah. not in the studio. And to me, before that, it was the Wrecking Crew people. And that was, a, you never thought you could play at that level mm -hmm. of these people. They were like the premier studio musicians in the world. Yeah. And, uh, and for me, the fortunate thing was, was the perfect time so that when we got into the studio, those people were still working. So I ended up on lots of records with Hal Blaine and Larry Nechtel and Mike wow. Melvoin and Jim Gordon and all the people that were the, the, the Al Casey's and Dennis Budimir's and all them. They were all became friends. And then their careers didn't go away, but they slowly slowed down and we ours got momentum. So there was this transitory period that took place. The session plays, the wrecking crew especially, uh, even Steve Lindsay was in here yesterday, we're talking... He goes, you know, I wanted to be a singer-songwriter artist, but when I went with my dad, uh, Mort, who yeah. was a great composer. Lindsay, yeah. Yeah. And I went to Capitol Records, and I saw the session players coming out and pulling up in Porsches, had the sunglasses on. I went to my dad, and I said, I want to be those guys. Because <laughs> the session players in the 50s and 60s were the coolest Amazing. fucking guys well, I was ever. in a band called Group Therapy in 1967, and we were produced by Mike Post. Oh, wow. And um, we weren't allowed to play on our record. It was, so we were, that was the first time I was ever in United Studios at United A. Yeah. And I'm sitting on a couch looking through the window. We were allowed to sing on our record, but we weren't allowed to play on it. And I'm looking, and there's Hal and Carol Kay and all of those people. And I'm in 1967, and I'm going, holy crap, mm -hmm. this is another world. And then finding out that they were playing on Sinatra and the Beach Boys and the Association and the Mamas and the Papas and all this stuff. I'm going, I could never do this. Yet three years later, I was working with them every day. So it's... It's, it's the momentum. It, well, it happened so fast that there's no... Because I get people over the years that have always said, how can, I want to do what you did. How can I do it? I have no idea. It's the moment. Because it just happened. You just you know? start. Yeah, you're just in the right place at the right time. It's a perfect storm. And the fortunate thing is the door opened and you had the goods. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people that have opportunities come, but they couldn't back it up. Yep. You know, or, they, or maybe they had the chops, but not the personality or, you know, the drugs. You know, the, the, the yeah. And it, there's so many things come into play in, in this world. That uh, so you know it, it was one of these things. It's just been a remarkable journey, and I kind of pinch myself every day. And it really comes to a head. I don't feel it so much when I'm sitting at home and people are sending me files nowadays, and I'm doing stuff from home, not. which really only came about because of COVID. I had never recorded at home. I don't have a home studio, and I'd never done anything at home uh, prior to COVID. But I had people starting to say, "We'd love for you to play on this," but. And I'd say, I don't, I really don't do that. But uh, usually I would, you know, tell people if send me files and I would go to a friend's house who had a home studio, uh, but we, none of us were seeing each other anymore. And this one person called me about a project and they ended up, uh, they had an, uh, a connection at SSL 
and they ended up sending me a two plus interface. Mm. And then I called uh, Steve Postel, who's one of the good, good, one of the members of our band. And over the phone, he gave me a tutorial on GarageBand. <laughs> and so I, I've done like 18 albums at home now. GarageBand. Uh, just using GarageBand. No shit. Um, Unbelievable. You know, but the, the, the drag of it is, is, is to me, the thing that I enjoy about this is the camaraderie in a studio. So when I'm sitting at home just, you know, coming up with ideas and stuff, I mean, it's great, but I'm not affecting anything other than me. Yeah, um, I like being with a drummer. I like being with a guitar player, a keyboard player, and kicking ideas around and working on a song where you go, bridge needs a bridge, and then the band ends up creating a bridge or an intro. You know, yeah. the guitar, you know, the artist has come in and they just play a thing, and you go, this kid really needs some setup. And that's what the band would do. That's what the studio guys do is they come up with that stuff, even though they don't get points or credit for it or anything like that. So many songs I've worked on, it became huge hit records. If you saw what the artist came in with, it has nothing to do with what the band ended up creating for them. Writing and that only songs. happens when we're all together. If yeah. I'm sitting at home doing bass parts, only thing I'm affecting is bass. And then half the times they're saying, well, kind of ignore that and ignore that because we're going to replace all that. And you're going, well, well I'm responding to it because it's what I'm hearing, and you're saying that's not going to be there. Exactly. I mean, it's a weird format now. Uh, I, I like working though, so I don't say no. Yeah. But it certainly isn't my go-to way of of making records. Back to you know being successful and things starting off, because also mm -hmm. you know there's so many musicians that are either at USC or Musicians Institute or coming here and are 18 years old, and you know they're scared, you know about being a musician or is this the right career yeah. path? But it's really the power of manifestation and thinking positive and working hard. Work ethic is 80% of it, in my opinion. Yeah. Even I've talked, Alan Sides is in Studio 2 today. Oh, great. Um, you know, obviously gigantic studio owner, legendary engineer. And I asked him, I said, what's the key to success? He says, my work ethic. You know, it's like I... I want these things, so I work. And then it's it's never the path that you think or the way it's going to happen. It just kind of appears somehow, or you meet this yeah. person, and you never think it's going to. It's just like the journey's the destination. You know, yeah. don't worry about the, the where you're going. Just worry yeah. about today. You just and, enjoy every moment. Yeah, exactly. you know, it's like Warren Zevon said: "Enjoy every sandwich." <sighs> yeah, I it's, love that. But it's true. It really is true. It's that journey that, that you take because things are going to come up throughout that whole thing where you're going to be going like this and all of a sudden you go off that way or this way, mm -hmm. but you thought you were going that way. And it could be right or wrong. You don't know, but, yeah. but it, it behooves you to, you know, just follow instinct in your guts and, yep. you know. Stay away from narcissistic people. That's another thing. When I, when I surround myself with very positive, motivated, interesting, creative people, that rubs off on me. Yeah. I, it inspires me. When I'm around people that are just complaining all the time and don't want to be here and it's too long, it's like then that affects me as well. Oh, totally. You know, especially in get a, it. a studio, it's like if you feel that way, don't be here. Exactly. Damn, get yeah. you know, there's there's other people that want to be here, so make room. Yeah, exactly. I hate it, man. When I'm around players that complain, he's just going to do hot tarring in August in Atlanta. <laughs> you know, go up on a roof and do that. You know, tell me about complaining or be a pit welder at GM or something yeah. like that. Not to d d denigrate those jobs, but there's hard work out there. Coming in this in this building and yeah. sitting down and playing music. Really, you're going to bitch about this? Yep, yep. Give me a break.
That's all right. You know, being from the Midwest, being from Indiana, and all my friends back there kind of went in the military right after high school, or they mm-hmm. went and worked at a factory, which they still do, do today, you know, and they work their way up. Uh, you know, a very small amount of people even went to college. I did, and I moved to Miami immediately uh, just because I was I wanted to be warm. Yeah. Um, and the beautiful women of Miami, because Jennifer Lopez works at Burger King down there, every single one of them. Yeah. And it was very fun to be 20 years old in Miami. It also built so much character growing up in the Midwest, the seasons. You know, I used to walk to high school, and it's, you know, negative 10 degrees out, and then I'd yeah. go work at a, a, an Olive Garden afterwards. And this generation today, too, is feels very entitled in their babies. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Very strange. One of the things for me is, is I I kind of my personal mantra is don't become an old fart. You know, because I end up working with a lot of artists in their twenties still. You know, and and when you get in, in the music starts, you're all on the same playing field at that point. But there is there's that element of things where you're just sitting there going, you're kind of watching like some attitudes or like I'll, I'll I'll do a clinic and you're talking to young players. And really their whole goal is like they're almost sitting there with like a BMW catalog. They're figuring out where maybe you should be playing better. You should have music in front of you and not a car catalog, but you think you're going to. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you know, one of the things that that really I think is really tragic in a way is one of the joys of coming in a studio like this is when you sit behind the console, you get in that sweet spot and you listen to playbacks. And you listen with big amps, big speakers, and just, and you look at generations now of, of phone and earbuds is their musical experience. It sounds adequate. I mean, you can listen to this stuff. Yeah. But when you've had the time to sit with, you know, voice of the theater speakers, you know, and immerse yourself in, the, in this incredible, you know, almost physical relationship with music, um, and you go, God, so many people have no idea what that is. You know, I mean, when we were kids, everybody still had stereos. You know, you had your turntable and you had your speakers and, you know, either a decent amp or a crap amp. But, but you still were listening in that kind of thing. And you'd set the speakers around the room and look for the sweet spot. And you'd just kind of sit on the couch and turn the lights down and dig it. You know? yes. And so many people now, the music becomes like background to them they're still talking while they've got the earbuds going or they're distracted doing other things it's not like music is not the goal yeah. you know music is like wallpaper as you walk into the room and i feel really bad because so many people don't really understand what that visceral experience of really hearing music play loud and you know just crank it up you know exactly. shake the building and stuff I, that's still meant to me that's heaven Recording is coming back. Um, I consulted with John McBride, and I used to. This year, I flew down to mm-hmm. Nashville for six months every weekend. Have you ever been in his Atmos room down there at Blackbird oh, yeah. Studios? Yeah, he puts on you know Sergeant Pepper's because or any Beatles album because he's a complete nut. Hence Blackbird Studio. Hearing that sound in there, um, or even being in you know one of our rooms listening yeah. on these big JBL mains, it's just like. Whew, well, Alan is, sides. Yeah. you just mentioned he had a room his own little room over there at Ocean Way. Mm-hmm. And he, he well, I was working there one day and he said, God, come with me. And I forget what he played for me though, but it was like, I mean, this room is probably a million dollars worth of gear in it, but we just sat there and just closed my eyes. And I went, wow, yeah. wow, just, it is just, it, it's it's to your most essential core. Yeah. It gets you. You'll start crying almost. Have you ever been in the studio and 
been brought to tears because you're so moved by a song. Oh God, yeah, many yeah. times. I'll tell you one of the coolest things I ever heard. I was we were doing. I think it might have been Gorilla or In the Pocket. We did those albums at Amigo Studios, Warner in, Brothers, in North Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And I think in one of the other rooms, like Van Halen was working at the same time. Well, there was a little mixing room there. Yep. And I and I, I we were there for quite a while working. On, I mean, at least a week or something like that. And of course, there's a big sign in the door that says "Stay out." You know, you know so the, to me, that's like, you know, like, a, you know, like the, the red cape in. in front of the bull. Yeah. So I immediately, I just kind of cracked the door and stuck my head in. And the guy who was mixing it said, "You know, come on in." So we sat down, and it was a thing Rod Stewart had done. Now, this was for Rod only. This was for him at home. This had nothing to do with an album or anything like that. There was an old either Irish or Scottish folk song that he loved. And what they had done, instrumental piece, and it was a, a bagpipe piece. So what they had done was they, they found a great piper, and they overdubbed this guy like a hundred times. So it was like this mass wow. of bagpipes. Then they found a great drummer who had like the calfskin drum like the, that they would march in the fields with. And they did like a hundred passes of him. Then they went to Chicago to one of the great cathedrals there and did the pipe organ on it. And the guy was mixing this. And he said, Rod just wants this to have at home to listen to. And I sat there tearing up. I was just, wow. This is the most unbelievable thing. And especially when like the 32-foot pipes come in and the whole room just... You're just go. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. And every once in a while, you, know, you come into those things. Uh, one of the more moving things I ever remember was in 1985, we did the Grammys with Phil Collins. Um, and Susudio was like the big hit and all that shit. So we, we were doing that. And all this, well, we did the rehearsal. For the, for the show out at the Universal Amphitheater. The next artist came up, and uh, she was going to do her rehearsal. Well, it was Whitney. Houston. Nobody knew really. Houston. Whitney Houston. It was just like she had just kind of burst on the scene. And she did her sound check, and we were all in tears. Wow. Stood up and applauded. She was so unbelievable. All the people working in the amphitheater were all, you know, I mean, freaking out over this. And she just was out doing a sound check. Yeah, I mean, Alan, it's just... Alan Sides did uh, I Will Always Love You. Yeah. And you know how many takes it took to do that song? One and a half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the greatest vocal performances yeah. ever. Well, she's one the... of the greatest singers. Yeah. If you can do that, then there's no reason. It's like when Sinatra was doing yeah. his Two duets takes. albums. You know, music, <laughs> you know, they said, we'd like to you know, overdub. And he goes, overdubs are for pussies. <laughs> yeah. he, did, he would do one vocal and leave. Done. <laughs> you know, you just work with it. And, but if you're a singer, you sing. You know, I mean, that's the whole thing where it got so crazy where, you know, you, you you do like a scratch vocal for the thing. And then when the track's right, then the singer would come in. And, and I know, like, I, I did a lot of stuff with Michael Masser. Mm -hmm. And Michael did Whitney's stuff. And he would have her doing, like, he would have her reduced to tears. He had her, like, 70 vocals. And then they would comp and comp and comp syllables and all that. Because yeah. that's that mentality. But I'm thinking, man, if you're a singer, you go out and you sing. Yeah. I mean, you don't sit there comping all this stuff. You the know? imperfections I mean, are a, perfection. Yeah, I mean, but it's like when people started gritting things out, you know, and you'd go, how's it feel? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, just because it picked up a little when the chorus hit, exactly. that's not a bad thing, you know. But these guys are all sitting looking at grids, and that's their musical concept. And they're looking at tonality and go, ah, it's a hair sharp. God, it feels good. 
you know, or they, or when they're listening to like something, they're listening like a solo, like a hi-hat or something. And they'll go, oh, see that little thing. I go, put it in the track. Do you, re do you really hear that in the track? Are yeah. you really that anal about this where you're going to go after each little thing? And that, that's where the business started driving me crazy when people were micro, you know, looking at this stuff. I mean, I, I would still loved when I would get called by, by Doug Sachs to go do stuff for, for uh, Sheffield when we would do direct to two track stuff. And you, you can't, you don't make mistakes. That's the thing is you just get out there and it's performance and it's first generation. So it's going to sound the best it's ever going to sound. So you go out there and you play it right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and how many times have you been in the room and got it on the first take where it's got the first take magic? Oh, absolutely. Or when you, or it's like your heartbeat, you know, when you get excited about something, your heartbeat speeds up a little yeah. bit. That's like a chorus and a song. Yeah. Um, I found the isolated vocal, um, Give Me Shelter. Mm -hmm. They were working on that in Studio One. Um, and the amazing background singer that does... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole thing about when 20 she feet for woke stardom. up in the middle of the night and said, yeah. get down to the studio. I have that. Mix in the background going, woo! And that's yeah. in the, the final mix yeah. in the track. And I think that's one of the coolest things ever, you know, or listening to like some of the Captain Beefheart's records, the way those records swing, you know, and they're just, they're not on the grid or everything's on. They're no. just a band playing together. Well, like I said too, and those, those first takes are when the, the juices are really flowing. You haven't had time to intellectualize it yeah, yeah. and think about the thing that frustrates me at times is I used to do this all the time when we were in the studio, we would finish a project or if it was going to be just a track. I would have the, the engineer doing it. it. Give me a cassette, board, just give me a rough mix. And then I would hear the record when it was finished and I go, they lost it, they lost it. That rough board mix was the song and now they've added all this crap to it and they've tweaked it and they've compressed it and they've done, I said, it was so much better and, I, and then I've got evidence, but you know, I, it is what it is, but that's the nature of this beast or they bring in an in, a, a mixing engineer who wasn't there for the basic tracks. And you go, he doesn't know the vibe that went down and then he's bringing exactly. his own thing to it. So it's becoming exactly. his personality rather than letting the person who, who recorded the stuff mix it. I always, 90% of the time, if you recorded this, you were there in the room. And also, you know, the little cool things that happened maybe on take five that you want to punch in somewhere. Yeah. And uh, even if it's not the greatest mixing engineer, I want them to do it first. Well, when we did our... Maybe, I don't know if it, which album. We did three albums as a section, but one of them, we used to have a house in the valley, on, uh, not a house, a, a, a rehearsal room on Oxnard near Sepulveda out in the valley. And it was like this industrial complex. So we would go out in the evenings because everybody's shops were all shut down. We knew we weren't going to bother anybody. And we would set an old Sony uh, tape cassette deck that had like uh, compressor mics built into it. And we would set it in the middle of the room and we would just play and jam and record it, everything. Because a lot of times we'd go back later and listen and go, that could be a tune. And we would play. Well, we got in the studio to do, do our album and one song just never came together in the studio. And we went, it's, it's got to be on. And we pulled out the cassettes and found our rehearsal of it. 
it was so good that we went, let's just put that on the album. <laughs> and we just did a little bit of tweaking on the cassette and put it on the album. And you didn't notice that it was a different sonic, really. I mean, we did some things to bring it slightly. But the performance was so good that that's what you were going to be listening to. And that's the thing where a lot of people lose that. They're looking for this perfection and they're willing to sacrifice the, the beauty of like that first take where the magic all took place. And, yep. uh, and but that's a lesson learned. You know, a lot of and in 2023, a lot of producers and mixing engineers will be like, I like this song, but we really need to modernize it. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? That's the last thing we need to well, do. It's like hiring guys like us and they always say, can you dumb it down? <laughs> you know, they want it to sound like you've just, I, I just went to a pawn shop and bought a bass. Yeah. But MI's right there. You can get someone for $100 and they'll come over I here know. and play I that know. dumbed down version for you. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, that's incredible. It's a tough one. And these kids today, their ears are trained to hear vocals a certain way. You know, yeah. the drums, there's no cymbals on anything anymore. You know, yeah. one of the coolest things I've seen recently, and I, I love YouTube. I don't even watch cable anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's something on YouTube for every single person, interest, yep. and it's better than anything you'll find on a cable TV. I love watching documentaries. There's a lot of great series. Uh, Netflix, I consulted on this uh, Prince series that they've mm. been working on. The same people that did The Last Dance on Michael Jordan. This thing's coming out, and it's going to be incredible. They've worked on it for six years. But I love your YouTube channel, which is incredible. I love Scary Pockets, Jack oh, Conti, yeah. Ryan... Uh, I've friends done a few of mine. Of their shows. I love yeah. seeing you on there. That's yeah. so special. The and whole idea of how they do it is what's really fun. That it's just this completely spontaneous exactly. moment. You know, it's all get, about the music and yeah. having yeah. an idea, the song, and let's recreate this on the spot together. And there's, yeah. you know, that's exactly what we're and talking make about. it make it different, make it theirs. I mean, all the songs I've done with them, I had I've never heard the originals. On it, so I wasn't thinking. How it they was. tell I you just, not to. Yeah, and I was just responding to what we were doing at the moment. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a, it, that's a brilliant format. It's really a lot of fun. They're to do such that. good people. I got they do a lot of those in this room, and yeah. then I got my uh, girl Carmen on one, and they were really cool. Gave her a solo. She oh, played, great! She played with Jeff Beck, and um, they're just great people. You yeah. know how that started too. It's like you know Jack started Patreon, but they didn't put a bunch of money in that. They were shooting the first ones on an iPhone sideways mm -hmm. in a garage. Yeah. And just kept building. Now they have a tour that sells out all over the world. And, I know, you know. It's crazy, isn't it? It's such a fan base. And it's like, that's the kind of creativity. It's just like, get going on something. You know, just the momentum. This will lead yeah. to this, well, to this, and just Well, do you it. also make it something that's legitimate. Mm -hmm. Like that. You're not like trying to get people to buy something that sucks. Exactly. So you're hustling them. I mean, all you do is put something really cool out and then people will gravitate towards it and then word goes out. Yep. And next thing you know, I mean, for me, like when I started my YouTube channel, it was really all because of, of COVID. Yeah. You know, because my, like everybody else, I looked at my date book and in an instant, it, <laughs> blew away like a fart in a hurricane it was done um, and you're just going well you know rather than being defeatist about it you go well, what am i gonna do but we had just finished um phil collins is not dead yet tour at that point and i had people writing to me bass players going man we saw you in germany or south america you know it was and those were a lot of stadium gigs so i mean it's really big huge thing and they were going it sounded amazing, but we couldn't hear some of the details of it. And so I ended up contacting Michelle Colan, who was our front of house mixer, and said, could you send me a couple of shows, you know, just your board mix? And I got those, and, and I loaded it into my laptop, and I had a little Bose speaker and a, an amp next to me, and I, I put up the first song of the show and, uh, and just set up my iPhone and uh, played along with it. But I... I 
experiment a little bit to where the bass was louder than the track so you could hear every note sick and the first day I, I put that up on youtube and then the next day i did the second song well on the third day i had people start writing going man we love your youtube channel i'm going what are you talking about because i didn't think it was a you i wasn't thinking i'm starting a youtube channel i just thought i'm just showing some examples of these bass parts well i ended up doing the whole show a song a day and when that ended, I was having a great time. And all of a sudden, I went, well, what am I going to do now? So I started doing James Taylor and Jackson Brown and all yep. these things and just showing bass parts, all these songs. And I really made no effort on this thing. And I don't know, there's 240,000 people on the channel now. Wow, you got a quarter million subscribers. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I made no effort at all to it. But I still put something up almost daily. I just did another Linda Ronstadt Sail Away song, Randy Newman song. I just showed the bass part today on that. Wow. Um, but I try to do something uh, almost every day on the channel. That's amazing. And also people from different countries. Are, and you show studios like United yeah. and Sunset. And they're not going to be able to have a chance to come yeah. in here. Or even this show. It's like these stories. Where would you ever hear this that's, kind of stuff? That's the beauty of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. is this is essential documentation for the future mm -hmm. because especially with all the cats that are that are getting older and they're disappearing like i mean it's like i open up facebook and it's more of an obituary page at this point yeah it's uh it's interesting and then i love having that and that's why like i'm trying to interview as many people as i can out there on the road and talking to the, you know the kenny aronoffs and the amy you know, i mean all these people and like with lyle lovett we were out these past couple of years, and we're going out again starting in January, I, I do a, a tour of every venue we play and talk to the people in the halls and show yeah. all the basements and attics and all. Because these people, even if they can come to a gig, they're only going to see the lobby in their seat. They're not going to see backstage. and That's what you know, everybody wants. A fan wants access. You know, yeah. They want to hear the music, but they want this. Even like uh, Gibson, who I talked to, and they have a, a massive following, you know, they put out like live uh, songs that they do and stuff, and it yeah. does okay. But it's like if you the interview series that they do behind the songs, yeah, those have millions of hits. Well, a lot of people don't like doing that too. I mean, there's a lot of guys I've I've been on the road with where you're just trying to get them to do it, and they, they don't want to do it. They just know. feel it's an invasion, and well, you go okay, fine. Yeah, you know, I, I love it. You know, I love like with our documentary film. I've been to tons of the film festivals doing Q and A's afterwards, and I love just talking to the audience. And and they have million questions about all this stuff that they just seen on the screen, and you just go great. Yeah, and it makes their day. It. it enhances their their lives and their their experience. Uh, I do need to pepper in a few base questions yes, from some please, people man. here. So like Sean Hurley, yeah, uh, you I know him. Sean. He's, he's in my opinion, one of the greatest session players, not only because of his talent, but because of his vibe in the room. He yeah. can get along with an artist so much. He's so versatile. But... Ooh, that's Sean calling right now. <laughs> it's actually Waddy. Well, tell, I'm going to tell him we're busy. Tell him to come in on hey, Sunset man. Sound Roundtable. <laughs> I'm at Sunset Sound doing a, an interview. <laughs> and they said they would love to have you on it do an interview, too. Yeah, I did that. He asked me about a barbecue place in Sacramento. <laughs> He's out with Stevie Nicks, and they're doing this show tonight with um, Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks, a stadium gig that wow. they're doing. So. Stevie Nicks is touring right now. Yeah, oh, she's been touring for a whole year. I mean, they're, they're out all the time. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, Sean Hurley, though, yeah, uh, has Sean and I shared duties on Laurie Basilio's 
Oh, New yeah, album. she's an incredible guitarist. Yeah, she's an amazing musician. Yeah, Sean and I were the two bass players on it. Yeah, uh, she's super cool. Sean wanted me to ask you, I spoke to him this morning. Sean also wanted me to ask you, when did you first meet uh, Russ Kunkel? I met Russ Kunkel in 1968, I believe, and he was in a band called Things to Come. Um, they were a local Southern California band. And I think I was playing with a band called Little John Farm at the time. And uh, I think we were on a same bill somewhere. And I, w I watched their set. And I think I, ju I just probably said hello to him after that. Yeah. Uh, but we, the, the first time we really connected was with James when I was brought in to do the Troubadour gig with them. Obviously, uh, the rhythm section with him has got to be one of your favorites. Who's another? Uh, I play guitar, but I started as a drummer. My father was a drummer. Who's a drummer that, Jeff Picard, I'm sure, but when you come in a session or you're going on a tour and you see Vinny Kaliuta's name, who is somebody that really is Oh, like, God, man. I, I think that one of the greatest blessings I've had in this business is the drummers. Yeah. Um, everybody from, from Vinny or JR or Keltner or Victor and Drizzo, uh, Ray Brinker, Mike Baird. Um, uh, back in the day for me, I spent so much time with Carlos Vega. Uh, yeah. I mean, just like it, there's a wealth of amazing drummers. And every time I walk in a studio and I see one of these cats, I just go, oh, yeah. I used to work a lot with Ed Green, who was did like all of the Motown stuff. And then he moved on to Nashville. Later, I find out because I started as a classical pianist and I finally found out many years later talking to Ed that his mom was one of my piano teachers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and stuff. But no, it's all these drummers. God, yeah, it's like, you know, I love when I get to work with Keltner just because Keltner is probably the least orthodox of most of these guys. He, he'll just do some of the most amazing things. Uh, and you just go, wow. You know, Rick Murata, um, Rick Schlosser. There's been like so many of these guys. What about when you get in a session and the drummer sucks and you're... It's rarely happened, but every once in a while it, it, it does. And you just grin and bear it. You know, you get through the date and, uh, and you, you sort of feel bad about it. And, you know, the, the real problem with it a lot of times is those are the guys with the attitude. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think deep down they know they suck, so they're going to put up this barricade in front of you of personality. I've been really fortunate that very few times in my whole career um, have I been in a studio situation where there was a guy who really sucked. Yeah. You know, they, they usually tend to find the right guys. Now, I did one project where the artist had a friend who was a guitar player, and he really wanted his friend on the date. And this was with a producer who had, like, some really massive hits and stuff, but the artist was really saying, no, we, I really want my friend on this thing. Oh, yeah. And the guy really was not good, and it was really f fucking up the date, having this guy there. And, and it, the rest of the band was amazing, so the producer kind of got everybody to the side, and he said, look, I'm just going to say we're having a technical problem, and could we're going to have to call the date and all this, and then come back in an hour kind of oh. thing. You know, just, you know, this, you know, well... So we all said, okay, it's fine. So we go and come back in an hour. About two hours later, the guy comes back to pick his gear up. Oh. And he sees the date going oh. on. And he's not oh. there. It was oh. one of the most uncomfortable, horrible moments oh. on that. You know, I, I, But the producer just... I didn't have the heart to tell the guy he was not good enough to be on the session. Yeah. And uh, so it was one of those things where everybody's like... 
and try and get as small as they can in the room. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's like the back in school, like when they were doing pop quiz, if you did this, you didn't think the teacher could see you and when they wouldn't call on you. <laughs> One of my favorite artists and an artist who's done a lot of amazing albums here, Jackson Brown. Yeah. Describe what Jackson Brown means to you and to the world of music. Jackson's just one of the best cats in the world. His humanity, number one. I mean, he's one of those people that if there's anybody in need or if there's some kind of a fundraiser, he's the guy at the front of the line saying, how can I help? And that, to me, is reflected in his songwriting and his performance. He really lives every moment of his life. Um, the first time, when we did his first album, we did that actually at, at um, Crystal Studio where John Fishbeck, who I met James Taylor through, I mean, all these things weave around. We did it there. And I, I mentioned it in our documentary. I, when I got called to work with Jackson Brown, I kind of thought he would be a black artist because it was that kind of a, like a Jackson Brown is yeah. like a superfly kind of a name. <laughs> and all of a sudden there's this little white guy in the, in the room. I'm going, oh, wow, you're Jackson. Cool. And... But there, here we are, like cutting Doctor My Eyes, you know, and stuff. And this, and I just like, as soon as he started writing Jamaica, say you will. I mean, his songs are so good. He's such a brilliant, Savant. brilliant writer. I've treasured every chance I've ever had to work with Jackson. He's just, he's great people. He's real supportive of the community and and the musicians around him. Those days, there was something about the music scene in that early '70s in this town where. There's a lot of times now where people are real possessive, like they got a record, I don't want to get away from me kind of thing. There, everybody's hanging out with everybody. So you'd go to somebody's house, you'd go to Carol King's house, Jackson would be there, you know, and David Crosby would be there. Mm -hmm. You'd go to Mama Cass's house, and Mama Cass was Russ's sister-in-law, Russ Kunkel's sister-in-law, and there'd be all these people, Joni Mitchell would be there, and Stephen Still. There was a community here where everybody was sharing. We'd be in the studio with, like, James Taylor, and David Crosby and Graham Nash would just show up at the session, and they'd go, let's do background vocals now and have them sing. I mean, it wasn't like all this kind of... My people will call your people kind of stuff. And that was amazing. And Jackson was like right in the thick of all that and still is. He's really like a a gifted artist. The only thing I'm really grateful at this point is they finally showed his age. (laughs) He's got a gray beard and his hair's got gray and thinning out a bit because he was like this this young kid while everybody else was aging he was like benjamin button or something going in the other direction yeah he's got some really bad uh back issues right now i heard speaking of being brought to tears by music and songwriters uh, i heard him do an acoustic version of these days Mm -hmm. about a year ago and he was having a lot of pain in his back and he still did it yeah it was for this uh bob saget thing down the street oh yeah and it was just one an incredible experience, but just the passion he has, and you know, yeah. hearing someone like that sing that song acoustic, and he's oh. great. He's I mean, when we did Running on Empty that tour, it yeah. was unbelievable because here we were going to go on the road playing all new songs, yeah, for an audience that had never heard any of this before, and it was like guerrilla touring at that point. I mean, we just went for it, and we recorded every night. We had the great Greg Ladani yep. engineering it, wow. and. Uh, it was amazing, and it was one of the, the. It's probably one of the best live albums ever because it's really how it went down. There's so many live albums I've heard that actually 
they finish and then they went and the only thing left live is the audience <laughs> and they've gone in and tweaked everything and punched in all the horns and all Jam, running on empties as it went down i mean it's really an amazing piece of work to I'm me put that on what do you remember about being in studio with all uh, studio one with jackson the production team the songs do you remember anything specific oh, about just, like being was, on The Pretender? Or? It was all great. You know, I mean, that's the yeah. thing. It's like Jackson's tunes made you want to play, number one. And then the community that we had with, the, you know, the Russ Kunkels and me and all the cats. And when we'd get in there, it was like this kind of like a family picnic getting mm-hmm. together. They'd start a song and everybody would find their way. We'd all weave around for a moment trying to figure out what was going on. Because no, there was no rehearsals for these. You know, It's not like they're going, well, we're going to work for a week and then we'll go in the studio. <laughs> I mean, it all went down as it went down. And it was, it was always a joyous experience to yeah. be in the studio together. And that would have been a detriment to have a band like that do pre-production because you well, would have wasted so you much. You would have lost the great takes. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I always tell people when I, they when they say, well, we'd like to rehearse beforehand. I go, then rehearse in the studio and <laughs> and run the machine because it's because what, also what happens is when you rehearse a lot of times, you'll go to like some rehearsal hall. Everybody sets up together and they're all working on the stuff. You get... You, used to that sound and all of a sudden you're in a studio and you're in headphones and everybody's and it doesn't have that vibe when you're sitting i hate baffles you know mm-hmm. i you know i think a lot of that stuff is really there because they don't trust that people aren't going to make mistakes so they want to have everything isolated so they can go in and tweak it but you listen to some of the greatest records ever made and there was almost no baffling in the room there was stuff and if you could iso tracks you'd be hearing leakage from all over but that leakage also creates the vibe of that sound. Sure. And, um, and so with that, I always say, whatever you can do, record it, if you're going to do it, because there's going to be something that's going to happen that ain't going to happen when we get in the studio to do it. Yep. And uh, I, I love that part of it. You know, this show started because uh, Eddie Van Halen passed, and yeah. I was like, I want to interview Ted Templeman and Don Landy, which I've spoke to Don Landy and Ted Templeman, and they've both confirmed that they would do this, and I'm just sitting here waiting. Yeah. Um, I, I really want them to come in. Not come to put on. you on the spot, Ted and Don, but, you know, Don called me out of the blue and just said, Drew, I love the show. I'll do it, but I want Ted to do it with me. I said, oh, yes, amazing. Tell me when. But it started with just about Van Halen. I wanted to investigate Van Halen because Eddie had passed, and they have came in here and did their original demos you know yeah so did you do you remember seeing eddie here at all back in no the... i don't think i mean the closest i ever got to those guys i think was at amigo when we were doing like the gorilla or in the pocket one of those things yeah. and they were in another room working but usually everybody was kind of like so busy but you might pass somebody in the hallway and just say yeah. hi i think I, I bumped into eddie studio d at henson i think he was doing something there and wolfie was playing on it so i went over yeah. to say hi to his kid and stuff and eddie was because eddie's in my book yep in my finger book he, he's he, i got him that day over at ed and wow uh yeah wolfgang did a record in here and yeah. ed, ed came down you know yeah and uh bill mims our engineer had talked to him and you know those it's guys did five shocking. records here it's still shocking that he's gone i mean so many of these cats you just go really yep you know, jeff beck is gone that was. I mean, how the hell did that happen? That girl that I, I work and I'm producing a record. She at 23 wrote a record with Jeff Beck, Loud Hailer. Did you ever get a chance to work with Jeff or jam with him at all? The funny part with Jeff is 
one of my favorite albums I ever worked on was Billy Cobham's Spectrum. Yeah, amazing. And that album changed the way Jeff Beck played guitar because he, when he heard Tommy Bolin on that, he completely rethought his whole approach to guitar. And every time I'd bump into Jeff, he'd go, Stratus, Stratus, <laughs> and he'd come up. And then he's in my book, and that's when I caught him right you after. You got Beck, too. Uh, Beck's in here. I think I got... Let's talk about that book for a yeah. minute. It's, we got it on our, co- our coffee table out there in yeah. the, the main <laughs> office. Let's... This thing is incredible. It's the greatest coffee table book ever. Um, there is, it's about six thousand pictures of people f- giving me the finger. In this, you have show. everyone. Bootsy there's Collins. Fred Midler just went by here. I mean, there's so many. When I saw you like six months ago, we were flipping through it together. I go, "Did anybody turn you down?" He goes, you, well, "I'm sure a few people did, but you said one person did." Yeah. And I go, "Who is that?" You go, tall Wilkenfeld. <laughs> yeah. And I go, you fucking kidding me? I go, she's a bass player. I know. And I go, yeah. But then she saw everybody that was in the book when it came out and asked me to be back in it. And I said, no. You said, fuck you. <laughs> well, I'm almost there. Where did the concept come up with this? Okay, here we go. There's, oh, wow. There's Jeff Beck. And then there's Charlie Watts. Both Holy of who cow. Are, are, are immortalized in, in, in my book. This also, and it's actually explained right at the, at the front of the book. Here, there's a little little picture right here of Steve Winstead, Chinner, who was my bass tech on Phil Collins's tour. And um, what happened was on Phil's um, first final farewell tour, uh, there was talk that Phil was going to retire at the end of the tour. And uh, I thought, I, sh- you know, I may never see a lot of these people again because the crew, there's Paul Williams and Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. Um, there was talk that Phil would retire, and I may never see these people again because they're from all over the world. The crew is from everywhere. So I thought, I'm just going to take pictures of everybody and, uh, and just tuck it away in like a little memory book. And uh, as luck would have it, the very first person I, I go to is Chinner, my bass tech, and he's working on his laptop. I say, Chinner, give me a smile, and he just goes like that. Oh, and wow. I look at it, and I went... Oh, that's that's cool. So I went and got everybody, Phil, his manager, truck drivers, bus drivers, you name it. There's Gwyneth Paltrow over there. Oh, I did a video God. with her. and She's amazing. Her then. Um, and I put it away. It was, you know, no big deal. And there's David Lindley, uh, George Massenberg, I think. I yeah, think so. Massenberg. Um, and then when I went out with Toto a couple of years later, I thought, I'm going to grab the same thing with those guys. Well, it took on a life of its own. And actually, with the 6,000 pictures I've got in here, I still have 7,000 pictures I haven't used. There's Lyle right after his colonoscopy. Lyle Lovett <laughs> and Billy Bob Thornton. Billy's a dear friend. Yeah. Hey, that's Sunset. That's yeah. Nico Bolas. Yeah. Uh, wow. So it's it's certainly been fun. Chris so Bode. I ended up meeting Alan Sides. Yeah, I, I ended up meeting a, a a guy who's become a very dear friend of mine named uh, Richard. His nickname's Blue Tremarchi, and he has a a, a a company. He does like fine artwork and stuff. And we met at a party, and I told him about these pictures, and he said, "Do a book. Let's do a book." And we ended up together putting this whole thing going through like reams and reams of. Uh, of course, there's uh, that's John Fishback right that's there. David Z, Prince yeah, Engineer. That's in, in this room, in right there, right here. This was doing Judith uh, Owen's album here. Oh wow! There's John Fishback, who is the guy who introduced me to James Taylor. Yeah, and, yeah, and Alan. Who's that? I know him. Yeah, it's, yeah. I but you know, so it, 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 so I've ended up like with this little business on the side doing these books. Um, 
And uh, I ship, I'm, I'm, I'm the mm-hmm. sole proprietor. Everybody just orders it. They If they go to lelandsklarsbeard.com. Oh, you, the, should, you go to, what's the website? It's lelandsklars, S-K-L-A-R-S, beard.com. And then I've also got, I brought this down. I, I, I'm doing these t-shirts with my beard on them. <laughs> that's amazing and so i've got these I've been, and i show up at gigs now and people are all wearing these shirts out there they've bought that's there's greg awesome. bissonette there's bob glob there's jim cox flea yep flea yeah we were going through this yesterday yeah it's it's like, pretty nuts incredible um, very cool it's really fun i mean to me it was like i've, I've had a few people kind of go that's really you know i don't know if that's in good taste and i go it's just just a gesture. Everybody that I asked, for the most part, just jumped on. There's Robert Hayes, we, um, Tim Pierce, down okay. here, Mike Baird, um, Jimmy Buffett. Oh, wow. That's cool, too, because it's just something different. And, well, the thing, too, is people say, you know, I didn't name everybody in here because, to me, this is about humanity. So I wasn't about to say, well, here's the celebrities and here's this, like, the, there will be a, p- a person I met on an airplane, and their picture's bigger than Jay Leno's. Because it's just, a, I like, you yeah. know, it, there's a mishmash of stuff in here. There's Jonas Helberg, one a great bass player. Oh, and you want to just, you want to There's think. my parents. Oh, I love This that. was doing the Grammys. This is, um, we got Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Merle Haggard. Yes. So it was with the three of them. And yeah. I have them individually, but I thought I had the three of them together. So I thought... What the hell? Let's let's go for it here. I know his son Ben. Yeah, but there's all kinds of. Have you done a lot of work with Willie Nelson? Oh yeah, I love Willie. Yeah, John he, Goodman. He gives you two takes. Oh Willie. yeah. Oh yeah, no, Willie. Yeah, he's he's not gonna flog Charlie that Watts. stuff. He's he wants to get out of there. You know? Did you get McCartney or Ringo? No, um, Ringo would never do it. Ringo is all about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, and and the times I've met McCartney, I it, it you know, you also have to read the room. Yeah, and you grab what feels right. It's my wife. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like there was a producer that I admire, and a period of record making that Atlantic Records did that is just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Ray Charles to me, and the way they made those records, the sound of them is just so incredible. Yeah, Ahmet. Art again, you worked. Oh, with I worked him. with Ahmet. I loved Ahmet. Tell me a story, a session. A vibe, uh, how he was in the rooms, what his, you know, theory about music was. Well, Amit, I mean, that was the heyday to me. Like when people talk about producers, the Joe Smiths and the Ahmed Erdogans and those people, these guys, so many of the labels kind of grew into lawyers and accountants running the labels. Mm-hmm. It was very corporate. Guys like Amit, they knew they could make money with this, but their passion was the music. We did an album with a, a guy named Steve Kowalczyk, which was kind of like a uh, Harry Connick-type artist uh, before Harry Connick. He was doing like the sort of sinatra thing, but not <coughs> Sinatra songs. He was an, an original writer. But uh, he did the stuff, and I remember the, the, um, it, they had me come down uh, to do this. It was a great band, Nino Tempo playing sax, and um, I think Carlos might have been the drummer on the stuff. They wanted Upright on it. And I started on Upright, but my chops weren't up to this. But I said, look, I've got a Washburn AB45 acoustic bass that I've made into a fretless. And let me play it for you if you like it. 
And and Ahmet, it's great. He heard it and he loved it. And so that's what I used on the album. And Ahmet was just great. He would just sit there and listen. And he's one of those guys that didn't say a lot, but when he talked, you listened because mm -hmm. he was laser right there. But he really gave the band the space to really find the songs and do it. And I always remember, I would look just down, he had like these velveteen loafers on with A.E. embroidered on them. He was, he was a stylish cat. Yeah. And, um, but he was, it was he, there was a, a number of producers like that, the old school guys where they pretty much, they, they orchestrated the band. They put the band together and then they would sit back and let the band find the music. And then they would throw out their ideas once they heard it, rather than being one of those guys that's immediately jumping into the fray. Yep. Uh, Amit was, and I, I was around Amit a lot because uh, Phil Collins was on Atlantic, so you would, you know, Amit would be at any of the functions we were doing, and he was just one of those cats with panache and style. You know, you just go, this is, this dude is a new songwriting. He, well, that's it, uh, Richard Perry. Oh. was very much like it. Richard was oh. not so much a hand. And Richard's who I worked with. with When I worked with Ray Charles, it was with Richard. Was Steve and, Lindsay on that too then? Um, He's kind of his co-producer, underboss. Um, from uh, 85 uh, to on 90. On the stuff I did with him, it was... I, I did a song for you, the, the Leon Russell song with him, and, it, and he ended up winning a Grammy with it. And it oh, was yeah. me and Steve Gadd yeah. were, were doing that. And then I worked with Ray a number of times at his studio, which was down on uh, Crenshaw yep. uh, in East L.A. And we had done and we did, one of the fun projects I did there was a guy named Ellis Hall. I don't know if you ever heard of Ellis, yeah. but Ellis is a black blind singer, songwriter. Sure. Every Well, Ray and Ellis and Stevie Wonder were going to form a group called Three Blind Mice. And then Ray died. And uh -huh. they, it never came through, but they had done all the prep work for it and stuff. It would have been so great. But I remember Ray asking me into his, his office one day, and I, I go and I sit down, and he shuts the lights off. It's pitch black in there. And he goes, I know where you are. <laughs> I mean, it's like that blind sense. I mean, he knew the room. He knew where every speck of dust was, and you're sitting in there going, where the fuck am I? Yeah. He was a funny cat, and he would he'd never learn your name. He just a bass player. Bass player. <laughs> God, the stories I've heard about Ray Charles. He'd yeah. be called in to do a tracking session, and it was $50,000. And if you didn't have cash there for him, you know, he'd send his manager in and say, oh, Mr. Charles would not be joining you today, but feel free to call us when you do have his money. Yeah. And then an hour later, they'd get the cash, fifty grand. And there was a bunch of cats he, like yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. you know, that just... Uh, Steve, or uh, Little Richard. Yeah, all those guys. I mean, because they got burned so many times. Yeah in their history that you, you, you just go, um, I'm not unpacking until I've got cash in my pocket, and that's it. But those kind of people, those were the filters. You know, it wasn't the disc jockeys. It was, it was great A&Rs, and those guys really knew their shit. Yeah. Uh, and the producers, Richard Perry, I met, they knew songs. Yeah. Peter Asher's that way. Oh, there's You know, so Peter many. really knows music, but Peter also really knows a song. So yeah. He can those guys just really knew their stuff. And that... It, is that what's, you know, obviously the internet and 100,000 uploads to Spotify every day, but wouldn't you agree that those people had so much experience and so much talent that they shaped an artist to oh, do yeah. a thing, you know? Um, well, a lot of artists came in to them with, a, with an, an innate talent, but they weren't a package. They, they hadn't found themselves yet, and these guys could really help them without 
without changing them dramatically, they would they would just allow them to really evolve Enhance. into what they had to be. Yeah. And and the thing what I loved with so many of those guys is they would support artists through many years of albums that weren't successful. Yep. You know, how many years did Bonnie Raitt record before she had Nick of Time? Yep. And then, and because they all know that if they can find that one thing that's going to make it, then the back catalog's going to sell. Exactly. So it's, this is an investment. It's not like they're going to give you one single and if it tanks, you're out of here. We did Sweet Forgiveness for my Women of Sunset record, recreated it and turned it into this kind of Jack White fuzzed out thing. But she did that album here and a lot of other stuff. But she was across the street at Crosby Studio at yeah. Crossroads, and they came over here. Um, and that nick of time was 89. Yeah. Don Waz, right? Yeah. Um, and that was a massive hit. You know, or you he, never know. Jackson Brown. Yeah. I mean, how long did Geffen kind of work with him? Yeah. Geffen kind of discovered him, correct? Well, he was certainly involved with him. I remember there were times where David would like come to the studio when we were at, 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 over at Crystal. We'd have the door locked, and we would realize... David's I was like, shh, don't say, don't say a word. You know, yeah. Wait for him to leave because <laughs> we, we were in a th- in a moment. You know, you're just going. We don't want anybody else in here. Just go away. Kind what of was I? You know, obviously David's extremely successful. Oh, was God, an agent yeah. to uh, an A&R label head, everything. But a lot of artists would put like. They'd hide from him or put signs. If David Geffen comes here, do not let him in. Like, what well, was he you know, like? Just, well, just because he he was an an intense personality, you know, all that success comes with that kind of a drive and stuff. And there's a lot of times where you, you just don't want anybody else in the room. You've got your little group of guys that are in this thing. We don't need other information at that point. And he might have had great information. I, Paul Allen from Microsoft was a dear sure. friend of mine, and he wow. had a fantastic studio in Coldwater Canyon. And yeah. he would hang out. On, we would do some sessions up at his studio, and he was a really good guitar player. And he would be hanging out, and he would just sit there, and then every once in a while he'd go, what about in the bridge if you went and did this? And we would go, no shit. You know, he's quiet. He was just there hanging. He liked hanging, but his ears were always working. And so the, some of these guys are really good, like Amits, guys like that. They really knew how to just sit back and let it happen. Yeah. But if they had an idea, they put it out. And, and, and the relationships were strong enough where, you know, the artists or the band could go, no, nah, I don't think so. And they go, okay, go just, you know, just want you to think about in another alternative and there's a lot of you know, not a lot but there's those guys they really shaped the industry that we're in they really the, the labels back in the day of labels when you had the Lou Adlers and the David Anderleys and all these guys sitting over there on Ted the, Templeman, on, on the Russ Titleman. Now, Jerry Moss, who was the other half of A&M, he was business. He didn't come in on the sessions and sit there and tell you what to do or anything like that. But Herb would come in and he would throw out ideas and stuff. And he was so good that you'd go, oh, great. Thank yeah. you. I mean, you'd open the door. But it, we, it, there was a lot of times in those old days, you know, on the, on when there would be the union would send out like a union rep to make sure legit dates were, and we'd all go, shh, you know, we, the guy's seeing a car, you know, a parking lot full of cars, but nobody's <laughs> answering the door, he's being quiet. It's there was a funny dynamic to the whole business at that point. But, but, Next base question yeah. from a bassist from uh, USC School of Music. Please ask Mr. Lee Sklar, what is his favorite approach to muting? I have a, a kind of a weird way of, of muting. Well, a lot of guys do this palm thing when they're playing, and they, 
They do that. If I think something really needs to be muted, I tend to just put a couple of little pieces of, of sponge uh, under my strings or between my strings and do that. But with my left hand, even though I don't think about it that much, when I'm playing, I have a thing that I, that I do where I play a note and I lift. I, I kind of do the muting with my left hand as I'm playing rather than a right hand where a lot of guys will use the side of their hand or something like that. I, when I'm playing, it, it, it's hard for me to describe it because it's something I do. Or I've done it since I started playing. But as I'm playing, I, I'm always lifting off if I feel that I want that note to end. Not so much muting it tonally, but muting it for length of, of time. Uh, I, it's either touching the strings with my right hand or lifting my fingers with my left hand. But I'm not one of these guys that's, that has a lot of techniques for like palm muting and things like that. But one of the things I like to carry with me is a whole bunch of little blocks of sponge or foam. And like if I, if I want my old bass to sound like a P bass with flat wounds on it, I just take a, a piece of foam and I put it between the G and the D string down at the bridge. And then I put another piece between the A and the E string. And all of a sudden, my lively active bass sounds like an old flat wound uh, P bass on it. So Killer. I carry that around and I carry different densities because those will create different sonics yeah. with it. What's your uh, your prized possession uh, bass guitar that you have? Well, my I have two basses that really are the ones that mean the most to me. It's not, and they're probably the best basses I've had. The very first bass I that a real bass I had because I had like an old Japanese bass when I first started learning. I think it was a um, Saint George. Um, then I had an Echo bass after that because I wanted to be like McCartney, but I couldn't afford a Hofner, so Echo was like that kind of a shape and stuff. It was a much che cheesier bass. But I had an opportunity to, uh, for, God, it kills me now, for 90 bucks to get a, 60, a mint 62 jazz bass. Oh, my God. Um, back, it must have been around 66, 1966, but it was a 62 bass, candy apple red. And I ended up, I was in, still in college and, at that point, and one night I got bored and I took out a knife and a saw and I cut the bass body all up and changed the shape and I carved the whole thing. It says peace and love and all this shit on it. Um, that was the bass I used on uh, all of James's early stuff. I used that on Dr. My Eyes. I used it on Stratus with Billy Cobham and all Sick. that. But eventually I ended up, and I still can't remember how I ended up with it, I ended up with a 62 precision neck, not a bass, but just a neck. And one of the watering holes in L.A. at that point was Westwood Music, Fred Wallachie's Westwood Music down on Westwood Boulevard south of uh, Wilshire. And it was one of those places you go in any time. You'd see J.D. Souther, Jackson, all, all the cats in town. That was the place we hung out. It was so inviting and it was just a great scene. Well, the guy who did all of the repair work was an, uh, and who still does repair work and, and builds instruments is John Carruthers. I was having John do some work on something, and I brought this neck in. And what we ended up doing was he said there's a company called Charvel um, out near Raging San Dimas area. And they were doing aftermarket things. So I went out there, and they had a stack about this high of blank alder P-base bodies that they had just run a thing. So I got a piece of wire, and I hung each one from a piece of wire and just tapped them, and one of those resonated. So I bought that thing, went back to John with it. Um, we contacted um, 
I'm blanking right now. He started EMG pickups. We contacted them and they sent me uh, two sets. They had done a run of uh, P-Bass pickups. But I was a jazz bass guy. So what I had done was we routed this blank body out and put the P-Bass pickups where jazz pickups would have gone. But instead of a positioning like this, we reversed that positioning because I thought the because P basses are two pieces, where jazz bass is a single. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, why would you put the? Why did Leo Fender put the half that's on the G and the D string closer to the bridge? Because sonically, they're going to sound better than the A and the E string. So we reversed it and put that side. Wow. Put those there. Still had a cavity in the middle of between those that were the pickups would have gone on a P-Bass body, and that's where we run 18 volts on these EMGs, so there's two batteries under that. I don't like a P-neck, and so I brought in my old Peace Love bass, the carved bass, and John made a template off of that neck, and we reshaped this precision neck into being a 62 jazz bass neck. Well, in the doing that, we had to take out the frets to do it. So while he was doing that, I was looking around the shop there, and I saw this wire hanging on the wall. I said, what's this? He goes, oh, it's mandolin wire, fret wire. I said, let's try that. He goes, oh, it'll never work. And he said, I said, do it, and then if it sucks, I'll pay you for a, a refret to a regular bass frets. We put it in, and it was magic. Every one of my basses has mandolin frets on them. And it's almost like it's fretless, but you have all the accuracy. And all the cats that have ever played my basses go, holy shit, this is amazing. And the thing is, you would have thought they would wear out. Well, my, I call that bass Frankenstein because it's all these body parts that we put together. It was never a real bass. Um, so the, um, the thing that we did was we did it. And, and, and in all these years, I've used that on more than any other instrument I've used on records. And I'm on my third refret since 1973 Wow! on it. So they, they held up well. And I play really hard. Um, so, but the essence of that one more than anything is I, in 1981, the Dodgers won the World Series and we got called to go in the studio with the big blue wrecking crew to cut Queens. We are the champions with those guys. And they were all like fucking hammered. It was like the day after they had won the World Series. And, so, and we're in there with Jeff Picaro and Mike Finnegan and just Chris Bond, who did the, uh, the Hall and Oates records I did with like Rich Girl and all that. He put it together and he was playing guitar on. You're on Rich Girl. Yeah, that's your bass. I did on all Rich the Girl? early Hall and Oates. Did shit. the first album and then I did Band and Luncheonette and I think Beauty on the Back Street. I did those wow. albums with Hall and Oates. Um, so we're in the studio and that blank. It was still a blank body and at the end of the session, the guys are signing baseballs and shit for all of us. I said, sign my bass. So they all signed my bass and everything. Well, I end up, shortly after that, I'm at a gig with James Taylor. We're playing, and we're backstage, and Rocky Blyer and Lynn Swan from the Pittsburgh Steelers are there, and they see the bass, and they go, baseball players are pussies. You need football players. So they signed it. Then it took off, and there's hundreds of signatures on this bass, everybody from Merle Haggard to to Andy Griffith, because I did a couple albums with Andy Griffith. I've got Mike I mean, I've got um, Jeff Picaro's on it, um, Ant Whistle. Was on. One of the funniest things was I did a, uh, an album project, and on one of the tracks they wanted me and John and Whistle to both play on it together. Same track. Same track. Holy yeah, shit. At the same time, you know, we're, wow. we worked out part. But the funny thing was he played w- beforehand. We were goofing around, and he wanted to try my bass, and I wanted to try his, and neither of us could play the other's bass because I have really high action. 
his action is almost on the neck because he hammers really hard and all this yeah. shit. And we're looking at each other and going, this is so weird. Neither of us could play the other's instrument. Wow. I, I couldn't get a clean tone and his fingers were killing him trying to play with my actions. So it was a funny moment. We just look at each other. This is pretty weird. He was such a good cat and one of my favorite bass players. So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but that bass, because of the signatures, has more, even with its pedigree, as all the records that I've played Frankenstein on, it's seeing all the signatures on there, B.B. King's on it. And, wow. Because you know, even though I, I did B.B. King's 80th birthday and I used my Hofner, I wanted it just to have that kind of a sound, so I deadened the Hofner all up and put a bunch of foam in it so it sounded like an old upright. And, and I was sitting this close to B.B. King for wow. a week going, holy shit. And we were doing duets of Bobby Blue Bland, was there and Billy Friends Gibbons with his came son, in and Rod sang. Bland, he's a drummer. Oh. Bobby's son. I, I love Bobby Bland. It's a, I love the blues music. I grew yeah. up on it. I saw B, I saw Buddy Guy play when I was four years old. And I, to me, him, Jeff Beck, they're two, that's the, the two best. That's the right? shit. Yeah, I mean, those guys are just... Well, I got to meet in, in the mid... Kind of going into the late 60s, I got to meet Harmonica George Smith, who was one of the great harp players... I did a lot of gigs with George, and he turned me on. I got to work with Big Mama Thornton and Ooh. Jimmy Reed. Jimmy Reed. All these cats. Um, Albert Collins. I got to play Frosty and Snow Cone with Albert Collins. Wow. Like two of the greatest shuffles ever. <laughs> you know, all these cats. I, I, he, I was working in Watts the night the Watts riots broke out with, with, with uh, George Smith. Oh, and, shit. Uh, it was, uh, I, that period of my life is still one of the richest for me because I got to be around all those cats being around... Pee Wee Creighton, and there was a guy named Cadillac Shaky Jake who dressed kind of like in this seersucker suit, played harmonica, but his shtick was he had a chimp dressed just like him that also played harmonica. Yeah. So they would both be on stage with this monkey and this cat together. It was like unbelievable. Yeah, I, I love that period so much. I love blues music in general. Yeah. One, it's shaped so much of you know rock and roll, and just even today, like an artist like Jack White, who's oh, revolutionized yeah. the blues to a whole new generation. But let's say Clapton, he does yeah. the Crossroads Festival. Yeah, I know Gary Clark Jr. and yeah. I knew Gary before any. He was even on a label. You know, he was following Jimmy Vaughn around in a little pro yeah. Cadillac. Gary got put on by Doyle Bromhall through Clapton at the Crossroads Festival, and he did a song called Bright Lights, which mm -hmm. is also a Jimmy Reed song, Bright yeah. Lights. And he's very influenced by Jimmy Reed and obviously the blues. But when Gary did two, three songs there at Chicago 12 years ago, that exposure, that one moment, Warner Brothers signed him. You know, it was Lenny Warnaker's last kind of artist. He was yeah. really uh, mentoring and Scooter Weintraub, his manager, who reps Cheryl Crow. I, I love Gary, and I think he's such an incredible artist and keeps, uh, you know, real musicianship alive. And One of the hardest things about contemporary exposure is back in the day uh, when I, you'd be listening to radio, the, the, they would talk about who the artist was. Yep. And now you listen to these long playlists and you have no idea who the hell you're listening. I'm going, that's great, but who the hell? And I don't have the time to grab my phone and, and, and pull it up and you know Shazam it or whatever, yeah. you know, trying to see who the hell this is. But every once in a while, I mean, it's it's like I love like all the controversy over like Greta Van Fleet. You know, oh, this is they're just Zeppelin. Yeah, but they got their own thing. But it's obvious they're honoring that. It's like when you hear some of these bands that are still trying to, you know, they're emulating ACDC because yeah. they're still one of my favorite bands ever. 
But look at like The Weeknd, who you know is one of the biggest artists in the world. Go listen to some '80s music from uh, '80s music from Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah, tell me he didn't get those that Lindrum synth, you know, sound yeah. and so much totally. has been drawn from that well. Mm-hmm. And and you get a, generations now that don't even realize what the original stuff was. Exactly. They're just they've moved in at that point. But I I don't follow music that much. I like I drive around and I listen. You know, I listen to a lot of Sirius XM, a lot of different channels on that and hear stuff. But I'm my focus for the most part isn't like discovering new things. But you hear every once in a while you hear somebody and you just kind of go, fuck, that's good. That's really, and I have no idea who I've just listened to. And that kind of drives me crazy because I would love it. I mean, it's like when there's an artist like a Keb Mo. The first time I heard Keb, when I finally met Keb, I just went, you're the one of the few artists that the minute I heard you, I went and bought your album. Yeah. I said, I've got to support this guy because this guy's the, the real deal. And uh, I mean, he's not a young artist by, by any means at this point, but uh, you do hear these guys. I mean, I, I hate when people go, oh, there's no good music anymore. But there's great music. There's wonderful music. I said, the real problem is the business. It's no great it's, filters, yeah. Yeah, and, and you go, man, in the old day, you, if you were signed to a label, you knew where you were going to get screwed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was like a given. But they had this machine that could get you airplay. They could, they knew how to work it. They could get you into Peaches and Tower Records and all these places. So you had the chance to have your music be heard. But all of a sudden now we've entered a time where I work on some great records. And it's like working with that Larry Basilio. I mean, she's a monstrous guitarist. She's right up there with the best I've ever heard. You know, yeah. And she's got her own following going now. But it's hard for artists like uh. that you know, to, to make it. And you just kind of go... I, I hate working on records where I get calls like a, a month later and they're going, any idea who we could call? or anything? They have no idea. And if you come up with a little sticky video or something that might get some scenes you know, on YouTube or Spotify. But do you talk to people now and they got like a million hits and they're making $47? You know, it's like, how do you develop your craft if you can't sustain yourself with your craft? If you've got to have other jobs and stuff to pay your bills, that's money. I mean, that's time taken away from developing your skills. And clubs in town. There used to be tons of clubs in L.A. where you could go and play. And you could go in and play. Now, I mean, if there's a club, you're going to, if you're a band, you're going to be charged to play there. Yep. And the most of the great venues are now having, like, cover songs. Or, yeah. You know, it's all cover music. Because they can DJs. bring <laughs> drunk people in to dance that know, you know, Bon Jovi or something. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly sad and difficult an artist also not only has to have great songs but then they know need to know how to market themselves edit do all these social media platforms to get the music out there yeah. the labels the majors especially aren't going to sign you unless you have a monster following or you just went viral yeah. and they're going to bring you over to that label try to recreate that with your own audience and if it doesn't happen they just drop your yeah. shelf you I mean, it's it's sad. It's very frustrating. You got to be creative though. Find new revenue streams. You know, YouTube channels. Uh, what Scary Pockets did. You know, yeah. They're not writing original stuff, but they're doing something very creative. Like there's, they always used to say you could sell twenty thousand albums independently, and it's exactly the same as selling a million on, yeah, on a label. It's true. You know? I mean, the frustrating part for me is I've dedicated so much energy. I mean, I've got I think like going on sixteen hundred videos up on my channel. Wow. But I don't make any money off my channel because everything's copyright protected. Everything is. Almost every, I mean, if I put up a video playing with my dogs every once in a while because people love seeing my dogs, I can make a couple of bucks 
on it. But but the the, the YouTube channel, everything is blocked monetarily. Yeah. But that's not why I started doing it. So I don't look at it as a as a drag. It's something I really enjoy yeah. uh, doing, and it gives me a every day. I kind of it, it. What it also did is it required me to address my career, which I, I have never that. done. Like when people would be interviewing me, and they go, "So what did you? What songs have you played on?" And you're going. Oh, God, I have no idea. You know, but all of a sudden I'm having to, you know, look at all music and all these different sites that have all this stuff. And I'm looking, and I go, I don't remember that. Then I'm digging them all up. Then I'm going, oh, I remember. Now I remember that. And I'm trying to remember who was on the date. And I'm doing all this forensic studies. Exactly. And then I'm yes. playing along with songs that I haven't played in 45 years and stuff. It's been a real adventure for me, but it's it's been a, a really positive one. I've really enjoyed this, and not from a egocentric standpoint, but just it's you're living in the moment every day. And my world kind of like people have an image of me, and they think of me from they've seen concerts. My skin is where my life ends, and all my impurities and all of my you know, neuroses are all I- internalized. And I never gave a thought to what I've done. You know, to me, the minute I finish a track and I'm, I'm out the door, I'm moving on to something else. Now, that's going to the audience, and they're going to disseminate it as they see fit. But I've moved on at that point, so I never thought about any of our history you know, if I'm in Home Depot and you've got a friend with James Taylor is being played over the PA, I go, oh, God, that's great. I mean, it happens all the time, you know, it's different things. But for the most part, I'm, I'm still hungry. Yeah. Know, I'm looking forward to the next thing. I've got half of next year's already booked solid and stuff. I'm, I'm thrilled about it. You know, I'll be 77 years old and I'm, I'm still out there having love fun, that. loving what I do. I yeah. can't ask for a better situation than that. Incredible. No, and that's also, I consult with producers and studios uh, all the time, and they wonder why they're at a certain point when, you know, five years ago they were at number one. They're not relevant. Yeah. Um, and also, you gotta you, you have to utilize social media. You know, oh, it's yeah. sad, it's, and it's toxic, and it's... Well, it can be toxic. It's what but, it is. Yeah. It's, you, I mean, what you make of it. Yep. I know so many guys that won't do like Facebook or back in the, I mean, there's so many different platforms now. Yeah. I, I like the minute all the shit started with Musk, I bailed on Twitter like instantly because mm-hmm. I, I never liked it anyhow because I'm too wordy for that format. And, uh, and Instagram, I mean, it's a lot of pictures and stuff, but I still put stuff up there. But a lot of people post pictures up from concerts and stuff. But I, I still find that, that, Facebook is like the easiest one for putting up long format videos and things like that, other other than YouTube. Yeah. But I've been out, out with the guys on the road and nobody wants to do any of it. They kind of go, oh, fuck. Well, when there was a kind of a precursor to this stuff, there was Scott Page, mm-hmm. who was the sax player in yeah, Super I know. Tramp. And, and Pink Floyd. Yeah, and Pink Floyd. Um, he started with some other guys. They started I've, a lot of different high-tech formats. And one of the things they had was a company called New NBC. And one of the beta things they did was Toto on that. And it was when I was out with Toto. And I ended up in administering the whole site for them and doing all the content because the other guys didn't care about this. They wow. were kind of like Simon Phillips would go, I'm too busy. I don't. I said, I'm on the road with you. You're no busier than I am, and I have no problem doing it. So just say you don't want to do it. Don't give me this bullshit. Of being... So I was posting everything I wanted to do on it. And at one point, I went in for a colonoscopy, 
And when you're done with those, they give you pictures of how you're, what you're calling. So I posted those on their network. And I said, a lot of people say I'm full of shit, but here's proof I'm not. And they were going, why, why did you put that up? I said, because I'm in charge. I said, if you were doing something, maybe you would have some say in this, but I'm doing it all. And it was just funny, but how so many guys I know, they don't want to touch this stuff. They feel like it's an invasion of their privacy. Or they go, you know, I don't want them to know all about me. I'm going... You're talking to me on a cell phone. Yeah. Everybody knows everything about you. There's no secrets in this world anymore. So nope. if you get over that, I just enjoy the interaction with people. I love, like like sure. I said, with the movie, doing the Q&As and stuff, where some of the other guys aren't that thrilled doing the Q&As. And I go, I think it's great. Yeah. So you, you embrace... And, and with... It's with giving the, back, too. It's well, the fans yeah, that are the I think the that's really important. But yeah. also just with these these different formats, you make what you want of it. You don't have to like spill your guts all the time. You don't fall prey to every scam that's coming through. I, I, I open up Facebook all the time and there's companies selling my image on T-shirts that I have never authorized. And, wow. so, and I have to go in there and write and say, this is a scam. Don't buy this and stuff. Um, they do it to Sunset all the time, but we've yeah. got everything copyrighted, trademarked, and also a legal team here now. And people steal our show constantly. And Susan Rogers says beautiful things about Prince, and then they take that content, put music underneath it so it can't be fingerprinted, don't give us any credit, post it, monetize it, and then when they're like, oh, I'm giving you advertising. I was like, we don't need advertising. Like, yeah. This is a special thing that I don't even get take sponsor money for. I just want to yeah. sit here and have a conversation with legends in these legendary rooms, and then they just steal the content. Yeah. And try to, you know, really they're not creative enough. It's ridiculous. There's someone like you who's, you know, they're taking your image and making money off. Yeah. You. People are just bad. Yeah. So, um, let's go to another base question real quick, and we'll move it. along here. I know you got to go eventually. Um do you want Pino Palladino question or do you want Ali Futter or the basis of Wise Blood? I'll take both of them. Pino Palladino. I love Pino. God. I love what him. He was in here for three months with us every day. Oh, that's great. Doing an iconic record that I can't talk about. But he asked if you ever change your strings. Oh, um, it really depends if I feel it needs to be changed. I don't have like a schedule. Um, usually at the most, maybe once a year. Yeah. Kind of that. Um, I I'm, I'm not a big fan of brand new strings. I use round wounds on on almost everything I've got. I use GHS Super Steel, kind of a medium light gauge, which is 40, 58, 80, and 102, and then like a 120 something for the fifth string. But um, I I like them when they when they've kind of settled in, and it's really not till like harmonics are starting to get affected that I'll maybe really look at putting a new set of strings on. But uh, I, I don't think I've ever changed strings. Uh, like on Frankenstein, uh, that's my main studio base and everything. If I'm having a really busy year, I might end up changing it twice, but odds are maybe once. And sometimes, you know, I've got a couple of bases that are, there's a few years on them, but they, they can tend to oxidize yeah. with time, and that, that isn't, to me... Um, cool it's just they just feel start to feel a little shitty even if you steal one so maybe once a year justin andres uh plays bass for eric burden he is begging he said please ask lee for a story about recording one man dog with james taylor in a cabin on a lake one of my favorite bass albums 
Um, did you record that, that in the we cabin? Did, we, that wasn't actually a cabin on a lake. That was James's house on Martha's Vineyard was being built at that time. But it was all wood, so it looked like a cabin. But it was a huge house on Martha's Vineyard. And uh, what we did was we brought in a, a console from New York City, because this was out on the vineyard. Out, or We brought it in from maybe Boston or something. We set up a console and some pictures up there. And we all just set up in this big room. There was no baffles, no nothing. And Jock McLean, who was our tour manager, and Peter Asher both engineered the album. Wow. Um, and we just did that at James's house. And, but it looks like a cabin. And, and then the cover, I think, on that was James oh, on a canoe doc. with his oh, dog, his uh, David, his, oh, yeah, yeah. His, his shepherd on that. That was just a picture of, of probably taken on the vineyard on one of the little lakes there. But it was in James's house. Uh, on on Martha's Vineyard. Do you drink alcohol? No. Smoke weed? No. Nope. Never did anything. Really? I am the most boring cat in the world. No, that's I incredible. was a designated driver like when I was 15. Everybody I knew would be drunk and stuff at gigs and I'd make sure everybody got home and stuff and I was around so much negative stuff, people on bad acid trips, people on heroin and and a, a singer that was in a our lead singer in a band I was in died of a meth overdose. Mm. And I just saw all this negative stuff. And I'm like, why would I want to do this? I'm, I'm too much of a control freak. I think if I was to get high, I'd fight it. Yeah. You know, so for me, it's, it's just easier to be, you know, but I was never judgmental about it. You know, if people can do what they want, I just didn't want to see people hurting themselves. Yep. And also, I don't think that's boring at all. I think a lot of kids and younger artists are catching on to that. Like, even when they come in the studio, you know, it's not like party time or, yeah. you know, maybe it's someone smokes a little weed, but other than that, it's, you know, you don't see blow or it's, yeah. you know, it, I want to be, I want to have a good life. And, you know, when you, how you live in your twenties is how you're going to be in your thirties, thirties, forties and, yeah. and onward. And look at you, you're, you know, healthy playing sessions every day, yeah. doing a YouTube channel. You know, if you had drank your whole life. Oh, no, I wouldn't you, be, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, One of the funniest things was back in the old days, we used to do a lot of things at Electra asylum studios on la cienega yep and you'd go in and it was all done in like indian bedspreads and all and we'd go in there and i'd go this lighting is for the playback man can you turn on some lights in here we're all going into a flat lining here because they had it set up in this groovy yeah. environment and we're all sitting there going oh it's like, turn on the you know the, the fluorescent lights and we were at work you know when you walk in that door as much fun as this is, this is your job. And you want to come in and give it your everything you got. You don't want to come in. I hate, I always hated being around guys. I, I don't care what you do after the show. But in the show, I don't want to see drinking or anything like that because it affects everything. Yes. And uh, I really like working in a professional environment. You know, you talk to Luke, you know, about how he feels about what he did back in his days of drinking and stuff as compared to how he performs and plays now. I said, he was always a great player because I think he's one of those guys that was always going to be a great player. But just when he's there, you know, with you, it's, it's the best. You, know, yeah. you don't want to be dealing with this guy who next thing you know, he's going to be hanging over your shoulder and you're going to be carrying him back to his hotel room, you know. Yeah, you it's just you lose too. That's yeah. a, you, when you booze, you lose. I yeah, think alcohol is questions. just a, a demus. Um, Ali Futter or Wise Blood, what do you practice on, Lee? Or what do you when do you do practice? What do you do? Um, I've got a little setup at home uh, in one of the rooms. I've I've got my laptop. I've got a uh, a Tascam 
little bass practice thing that you can yeah. plug into that has you, like, that. you can put a CD or run a direct line into that. And I have a, a, a small practice amp next to me and a Bose speaker plugged into the laptop. Like when I'm getting ready to go out on Lyle's tours, um, it, there's a challenge with that because there's no rehearsal for his tours. The first sound check is the rehearsal for the show. Okay. And so you've got to have about 70 or 80 songs under your belt because you have no idea what the set's going to be because there can be different songs added even throughout the show. If somebody calls out a song from the audience, he might go ahead and start playing it and you've got to like be there. Um, so I, I just sit home, put on headphones and just play along. I don't, I don't actually technically, you know, like practice scales and things like that because I'm horrible at all that, just terrible. So I work on songs. And, and one of the things I do to, for relaxation, just to keep my chops up, our, our last tour with Phil Collins, I've got that. And there's, if he called me and said, we're playing tonight, I could play the show. Because like every week or two, I just sit and I play that show because it was so much fun to play. Wow. And, uh, and that's kind of my practice is just running songs and, and learning material. And uh, we've got some stuff we're going to be doing. We, our band, The Immediate Family, we've got a Rock Legends cruise coming up at the end of February and about a half a dozen gigs in the Florida area. So I'm reviewing because we haven't played together in a long time. So I'm, I'm starting to review all of our material for the set that we're going to do. And then the week after that's over, then I'm doing this Kiamo cruise with Lyle Lovett and the large band. So I'm boning back up on all the Lyle stuff because we have different sets because we do symphonic shows. So yeah. there's songs that are in that with an orchestra that we don't do in the regular band. And we have the large band, which is 15 guys in the band. Ooh. And then we do an acoustic tour, which is only four of us. So it's like... So that's all my, most of my practice is really just focusing on learning songs. Not so, and every once in a while I get really horny to play and I'll just plug a bunch of my effects in and do like Hendrix stuff, and, you know, which I love doing, but I never get to, nobody ever calls me to do that. I, I got to do kind of that when I was with Billy Thorpe and we did Children of the Sun and we did that as a power trio and I got to go out and go like giant bass rig that would have filled this whole room and stuff and it was, it was amazing, but... Jaco Pastorius. What did you know him early on no. in life? You met him later. I never got to meet Jaco. Really? I, I heard Jaco live. I, I saw Weather Report um, at um, Perkins Palace in Pasadena, uh, which is no longer there. Um, I mean, he was just like this remarkable, remarkable musician. He just took things. You know, it was interesting to me, like when Jaco hit the scene. All the cats in town were running home for trying to play like Jocko. And I just sat back and I said, can't you just stop for a minute and dig a genius? Yeah. You know, yeah. he's already done it. Yeah. So what's the point here? Yeah, I, I never felt, I don't feel competitive. Like when I hear Pino playing, I don't feel like I'm in competition with Pino or you know, I hear Nathan or I hear any of the cats playing or Jack Bruce or anything. We, uh, you, you strive for your own signature. And when it comes to all those other players, I just want to sit back and enjoy them, you know, the, the Abe's and all these different guys. I just go, each person has their own thing. And I just so, I feel so fortunate to be a part of the community yep. of musicians. Not, not, I don't have to stand out. I don't have to do anything. I'm not Mr. Chops Monster. I, I look at YouTube and there's so many chops mods, and some of them are like three years old. Yeah, I just I like hearing a song and responding to that song and coming up with a bass part that 
can bring something to that song. And it could be a fusion-y type thing like working with Billy Cobham, but it can also be working with, you know, Linda Ronstadt or, or, or any of these people, Faith Hill. I played on Cry and, you know, all that stuff. Um, with Jocko, I just sat back and I went, this guy's so amazing. It only broke my heart that he was just such a, you know, a, a tormented cat on certain levels that ended up costing him his life because you try to imagine what Jimi Hendrix would be like now had he lived. You know, all, there's so many of these guys that died. Tommy Bowen, who I did, you know, Spectrum with, was dead. He was like 28 when he died. And you think, what, if Tommy was 70, what would he be playing right yeah. now? So it's, it's sad with Jocko when you look at, at, at the life of the guy, but the legacy that he left behind, you listen to anything he did early on, man, it is as timely right now as it ever was then. I mean, he's one of those guys that what he contributed will be there forever. Why do you think, and you can go around every one of these rooms, from this room with Prince, to Studio One with Jim Morrison, Studio Two with Eddie Van Halen, and on and on and on. Yeah. And almost all of them died very young from drugs. Why yeah. do great creatives have to go that route or why well, do you they don't think have to. they don't have to why do they get addicted to is it just enhancing or initially enhancing ideas and kind of going somewhere outside of your normal self that they're attracted to or is it just their rush or well i think i think one of the things is most of these people were really young and i think when you start immediately start becoming successful you know, making money, getting adulation at those ages, you're surrounded with a lot of sycophants who are blowing smoke up your ass. And you start to believe some of your own press. And they're not necessarily the healthiest people to be around. Like when you see all the talk about like a guy like Justin Bieber, and you know, oh, this guy's such an asshole. He's like driving his Ferrari through the neighborhood at 100 Well, I mean, a guy's like a teenager and he's making millions of dollars and he's probably surrounded with some pretty unhealthy advice from people. And nobody's willing to say no. You know, so they're there to support you. If you have a, if you start to get a drug habit, it's easy to get people to supply you drugs if you've yeah. got money. So I think a lot of these people fell to this kind of a, this trapment that, that this life leads. You know, I mean, Elvis was in his 40s when he died. Yeah. You know, I mean, and here's this guy who had everything in the world going, but he's like so self-destructive because there's nobody. He had, you know, he had Colonel Parker just, you know, kind of feeding all of his illnesses where the guys in the band who were trying to help him, they don't listen to them. They're kind of isolated off. So when you look at like, you know, Jimmy and, and, and Janis Joplin and, and Jim Morrison, so they're living this kind of an aberrant lifestyle. And if they don't have it necessarily in their personal makeup to be strong through all of this, what's going on, it's easy to fall prey to all this because it's glamorized so much. Yeah. I mean, it's like the hip thing. Got to try this. I mean, there were so many things going on in L.A. where you'd be on sessions and you'd be sitting there for three hours because they're waiting for the blow connection. And then you'd, and, and, and then you'd see the, the budget for the album and it would say miscellaneous. And, you know, that was all drugs. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't tape. It wasn't this and that. It was drugs. And for me, I found it boring yeah. to be around it because so many people, I found them really interesting. And then when they would get high... You know, it'd be a drag. You get on a tour bus, uh, and then the guy starts drinking. Uh, and the next thing you know, you got eight hundred mile drive, and there's a guy going, "I love you, man. I told you I love you. Kill you me got, now. I'm fucking kill you before this ride is over." How could you do that? Yeah, you know, you, but I love the music. 
for myself and you know and, and nowadays it's easy i mean most of the people i work with there's very few people get high i mean if they're still alive at this point they're not getting high yeah they might drink i may have some you know, you, you look at the old writers and things, and it was all Stolish Naya and, and Jim Beam and stuff. And now it's like, you, do you want red or white? <laughs> you know, you know they're green drinking. juice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so, you know, and for me, one of the greatest blessings ever was when they got internet on the buses. Because yeah. all of a sudden you got these long drives and you're not just sitting there, you know, like with a VHS, you know, hoping that the thing, yeah, I can sit there and take care of all the stuff I need to do while, while we're yeah. driving down the highways. For the most part, some places are dead, you know, Bermuda Triangles. But, um, but I, I think so many of the people that really, you know, fell to the drug culture and alcohol and all that stuff. I mean, it, it was really sad, but you really can't, you can't tell them until they're ready to change. And a lot of them didn't survive. I buried so many people. I know more dead people than live people that I've worked with at this point. There's so many are gone. And you look at all kinds of accidents, from the Harry Chapins to the Michael Hedges and all these different people. And they're no longer here. And it just saddens me because they had so much to offer. Yep. You know, the Harry um, Nilsons and people like that. So. Did you ever meet John Lennon? Never met John. The only two Beatles I've ever had the, the pleasure of meeting is McCartney and Ringo. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, it was funny. I was an usher at the Hollywood Bowl when the Beatles played there. So I actually got to hear the Beatles wow. play live in 66. Um, and then I met Paul in 1990 at Nebworth, uh, this huge concert outside of London. And we were there with Phil and Collins and Genesis. But it was, you know, Elton and McCartney and, and um, Page and Plant were there. I mean, Pink Floyd. It was one of these great things. And I walked into the canteen area and there's Paul sitting there with Linda. And I just went, holy crap, it's him. And I walked up to him and he goes, oh, Lee Sklar, I've always wanted to meet you. I went, don't do this. And then I've met Ringo a bunch of times and we actually got to play together yeah. uh, a while back doing this thing for uh, for Joe Walsh for his veteran vet aid that he does. And we cut Funk 49 with... Russ Kunkel sitting right next to Ringo, both like mirroring each other playing. Too cool. Waddy and Joe and Ben Montanch and myself. Love Ben Mont. Uh, oh. Joe Walsh has five days booked in here. And Great. Elton was just in here. Um, in the next minute, think of a special Sunset Sound story you could share. But I want to tell you something. And I know you had a relationship with David Crosby. When I first came here, I started going through every little nook and cranny and up in the tape vaults and just documenting, finding old Polaroids and just looking through everything and investigating the studio. Cause I was like, we got to do a documentary doc series, but it's gotta be done right. And there's might be something in the works, but it's gotta be a series. You can't tell 65 years in 90 minutes. Yeah. But I found uh, a bunch of photos of David Crosby and Joni Mitchell in studio one. And David was producing her and dating her at the time. And it's just, it's Joni Mitchell sitting in the echo chamber, first record ever. Songs of a Seagull, and she's playing an acoustic. Yeah, and yeah. it's just such an incredible artifact to have to see that. Well, right before David passed away, he was in here making a record. Yeah. You know, he'd come in for months. Uh, since I've been here, he's probably made four records here. Yeah. And he's the first one to tell you all about how his flaws and drug habits and to yeah. you know, steer you away. And I, Paul was talking to him. He'd call Paul, the owner, at home to book his sessions here. He's like, hey, Paul, I need to come in. David, for 30 years, I've been telling you, call the front office. You know? so, <laughs> David, David. But I went up to him, and he's the kindest guy ever. And after a couple of years, I got to know him. And then I sat down and showed him all these pictures. And he hadn't seen them in 50 years. And kind wow. of, it was just 
so special to be able to sit there and have an hour long conversation and have him tell me stories about Joni at that time. And, you know, he's a great storyteller. Exactly. What's a moment here at Sunset Sound that you remember? And it could be a song that you are so incredibly part of, or it could be a bass line that you wrote for a song, or it could have been when you played on Barbie Benton's record. Who knows? But no, Barbie was great. <laughs> Barbie was great. She made chocolate chip cookies for us. <laughs> she was so sweet. Uh, I loved it. Like I loved being here, like working with Manhattan Transfer. Just hearing those four sing together. Yeah. You, know, you put the phones on and you just go. That's the shit. Yep. This is really good. There's, I mean, there's so many. I mean, each each project has had just its own little things to it. But I, I think you know one of the things I really loved was doing Judith Owen in this room. Just recently too. Yeah, it was. Wow. Well, it's been about. It, it was weird. She just contacted me and she said she wants to do a show in New Orleans next year uh, that'll commemorate she, her as my tenth anniversary of working together. And I went. 10 years now I, know. I got to know judith because i was working with her husband harry Shear, and he had done an album called the end of the bushman it was about the end of the bush administration it was a political satire record and we were playing up at blues alley or it's blues or jazz alley i forget up in seattle and uh, he said oh my wife's going to sit in on a couple of tunes and i had seen judith by really and she comes in and sits at the piano and went, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. She is such a beast. It's unbelievable. And uh, afterwards, she said, look, I want to do an homage. My favorite period of time musically was that James Taylor Jackson period. She said my, her father was an opera singer with the Covent Garden Opera Company. But the, she said when we would do family outings, we'd be all singing James songs. And she said, I'd like to do a record as an homage to that period. And she wrote all these great songs in that ilk. And this is the room we came into. And it's like I said at the beginning, she was sitting at that piano and would play me, Waddy, and Russ these songs. She wanted the band. She said, do you think the guys would consider doing it? I, call, I said, I'll call them right now. And I called Russ and Waddy, and they both said, I'd love to do it. So, wow. you know, so we would come in here, and we just knocked the stuff off, and we had Lenny Castro come in and do some percussion with us. But you know, I, I, coming in, if it was 10 years ago, it feels like yesterday. To me, when I when I walk into two and I look in that room and I still see Christofferson and Rita in there with the, their group of players and stuff and David Anderley sitting behind the console, they all have this incredible meaning to me of sitting, uh, I, I mean, in one and then going over into two and sitting in there and looking and, and seeing Corey Wells or Yazawa or all these different artists I've worked with over the years. These rooms just kind of exude those memories to me. It's, There's it's nothing. It, it was like a continuum of experiences. Yeah. There's never been. I've never walked out of here going, "That sucked." It was every every experience I ever had in this in this complex has been great, and it's one of the greatest fears I have in my in my life is that we'll lose a, this room. We're, this, this place building. is doing incredible, um, and there's also all these new things that are coming about here. So it's like that's great. I want to be here forever. You know, Danny Korchmar emailed me and was a little upset, and I know you know him very well. Yeah, um, he's in New York, and he explained that he's a New York guy right off the bat. And I had never talked to him before. He had did some work on Dirty Laundry, Don Henley. You worked with Don Henley yeah. once or twice. Yeah. Uh, but when David Page and Steve Picaro were in here, they had explained that they worked on that song. And 
apparently it wasn't accurate. So Danny called me up and was very pissed off yeah, about that. Yeah, he's very possessive about yeah. it. Yeah, and I said, hey, I just asked the questions. And he's like, oh, you should have done your research. And I just said, why don't, I, why don't we do an interview? And then you can come tell me your work. So Straighten it all out. Yeah, he's going to come on next. Oh, great. Were you part of Dirty Laundry at all, or did you do, work on that track? No, I, no. Most of that on that is Cooch created a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. On synth. I don't think I played on that. I mean, I did a, a number of things with Don um, over the years, but th- that was where Cooch and Don really came together and did that because Don really wanted to get away from the Eagles at that point yep. musically. He wanted to do something, and Cooch was the perfect foible for doing that. Yep. Um, and Cooch was like, he loves techno stuff and all that but, yeah yeah i mean we're in the span together the immediate family he's part of that and we've been together you know since 1970 wow. um I, I love cooch and he's moving back to rhode island he, he's out here and he's been out here for a number of years but he's uh gonna uproot himself I mean, he'll come in for when we have to do things but we, i just spent the last two days we did four hours each day of zooms for the documentary film and the album coming out so we were all Where, what network is that on? Hmm? What network or what's the production company? Um, Magnolia's Magnolia bought the movie. Gotcha. Finally, Denny Tedesco directed it, and yeah. um, it's really amazing. It's called the Immediate Family. So on the twelfth, um, which is Tuesday, I think it's coming Tuesday. Um, it's being premiered at I don't know like fifty theaters around the country, and okay. then on the fifteenth, it goes to general release and to streaming at that point. So Tommy Tedesco was in the Wrecking Crew, yeah. kind of the leader, and then his son as the one that produced uh, the Wrecking Crew, Wrecking Crew film, which is so amazing. And now my friend Elma Lovano from Jam Card is doing another film with him, and it's somehow based on I think Gold Star or the Wrecking Crew. I'm not sure, but have you heard anything I mean, about that? I think he's got a couple of things going on. Yeah, good for and him. I think he's doing a documentary about the great Wolfman Jack, too. Wow. Who um, was one of the greatest DJs ever. Um, so Den- Denny's always, you know, he's a really creative, interesting guy. So he's got stuff. Well, the Wrecking Crew was so logical because, I mean, of his dad. Yeah. He, he grew up with all those people. And to me, that's such a brilliant film. Um so we were completely blown away when we were approached to see about doing a, a, a not a follow-up, but a kind of a continuum of, of our transition into what we do. And, and man, it was so flattering that they had no problem, like almost instantly everybody they asked to be interviewed from Keith Richards to Stevie Nicks to James Taylor to Jackson Brown to Phil Con, they all immediately said yes. They hadn't, they didn't, he never had to go through their people. They just oh yeah, please. And they're all in the movie and stuff. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Did Carol Kay inspire you as a bassist? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. She's she, she's still a remarkable she, quite a character. She but, played on all that Joe Cocker, like feeling all right. I'm yeah. feeling all that's her on bass. Yeah. No, Carol that's incredible. Was, I mean, and when you really have to think back to what it must have been like to be like really the only woman in those rhythm sections. I mean, there was a lot of women in the orchestral part of it, but when you look at the pictures of the wrecking crew in the studio and all those guys, there's this blonde chick in the middle of it. So she had to be a, you know, a badder ass guy than all those guys, you know, to put up with all their crap. That's why Uh, she's a great player and and her body of work. you, You look at her discography and you go, wow. Yeah, she lives in Orange County. She's going to do this. Oh, great, I've, I've been great. speaking no, she, with her. She'll be, she'll be tremendous. 
I can't tell you how much this means to me. One as a fan, but two, it's just you know, especially you give your time to come in here and, oh, and tell pleasure. stories, and just you're so passionate and inspiring, and I just get Love a buzz this. talking to you, and you know, it's it's. Um, for future basis and people that are interested in these records and just hearing from you. So what's your website again uh, to get well, the book? And well, well, for the book. <laughs> for the book, go to lelandscolarsbeard.com. Uh, you can get that T-shirt with my beard on. And also, I was an artist through school. I've got a lot of artwork on there, museum-quality prints that we're doing limited edition. Um, but come to the YouTube channel. Just you know, log in. It doesn't cost anything. And plus, I've got a clubhouse with it. We meet twice wow. a month. I do Sick. a and 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 then when I've had this issue where my wife had this serious injury, but when she's back to normal again, I do a thing through the clubhouse too, a one-on-one thing once a month where I'll talk to people for like 15, 20 minutes, one-on-one, and uh, I'll be on FaceTime or, or Skype. And uh, it's, I love interacting with people. So, you know, but come to the YouTube channel, it's just Leland Sklar. And there's about, I think today was 50, let me, let me check here and see what, what which one today? See, these take so long to do, and then you have to edit them. They're three hours long. It's like, I want to do one a month. Yeah, this is one. today is my 1,537th <laughs> video on, yeah. the, on the network. I have like a 180. <laughs> yeah, so, so there's all kinds of stuff. And it, it's been fun. I mean, some of these have had, you know, like I, I play along with Susudio on that, and I That's think killer. there's like 800,000 or a couple of million views or something on that. It's just fun. I really, it gives me something to feel engaged yeah. every day with. And it's an eternal library of things that you've created, even outside of, you know, yeah. just the, the records you've played on. It's like somebody can learn about Lee Sklar and then in 30 years from now, go on this channel and, you know, investigate around and see oh, what you were. old dude. Yeah. <laughs> there ain't no sanity clause. Oh, uh, are you staying for, you want to go talk to the Alan Sides for a second? I'll go give him a quick hello and then I'm going to have to head home to check All in right. on my own. But at least her sister's visiting. So she, she she's kind of taken over so I could come in today. So it's, it's good. Thank but, you so much much appreciate it my friend oh it's an absolute pleasure and you get a free t-shirt god damn it i knew there was a reason to come down here